them. I see. Unflappable British Reserve. I'll have to hand over the case to your command. Of course, detective, I understand. You're free to make any and all decisions. I appreciate the vote of confidence. We'll get it sorted out and I'll keep you informed. I better ring off now. Good luck. And to you. This was hard for Lincoln Rhyme, stepping away from a hunt, especially when the quarry was this particular perp. But the decision had been made. 522 was now his only prey. Mel, get on the phone and find out where the hell that evidence from Brooklyn is. Chapter 12 Okay, this is a surprise. The Upper East Side address and the fact that Robert Jorgensen was an orthopedic surgeon had led Amelia Sachs to expect that the Henderson House residence, the address on the post-it note, would be a lot nicer than this. But it was a disgusting dive, a transient hotel inhabited by druggies and drunks. The fly-blown lobby, filled with mismatched and moldy furniture, stank of garlic, cheap disinfectant, useless air freshener, and sour human odor. Most homeless shelters were more pleasant. Standing in the grimy doorway, she paused and turned. Still uneasy about 522's surveillance and the ease with which he'd set up the federal officers in Brooklyn, she looked carefully around the street. Nobody seemed to be paying much attention to her, but then the killer would have been nearby at DeLeon Williams' house, too, and she'd missed him completely. She studied an abandoned building across the street. Was somebody gazing at her from one of the grime-covered windows? Or there, on the second floor, was a large broken window, and she was sure she saw motion in the darkness. Was it a face, or light from a hole in the roof? Sack stepped closer and examined the building carefully, but she found no one and decided her eyes had played tricks on her. She turned back to the hotel and, breathing shallowly, stepped inside. At the front desk, she flashed her badge to the hopelessly overweight clerk. He didn't seem the least bit surprised or troubled that a cop was here. She was directed toward the elevator. It opened to a foul stench. Okay, the stairs. Wincing from the strain on her arthritic joints, she pushed through the door on the sixth floor and found room 672. She knocked, then stepped aside. Police? Mr. Jorgensen, please open the door. She didn't know what connection this man might have to the killer, so her hand hovered near the grip of her Glock, a fine weapon, as dependable as the sun. No answer, but she believed she heard the sound of the metal cover of the peephole. Police, she repeated. Put your ID under the door. She did. A pause, then several chains were undone, and a deadbolt. The door opened a short way, but was stopped by a security bar. The gap was bigger than that left by a chain, but not large enough for someone to get through. The head of a middle-aged man appeared. His hair was long and unwashed, his face marred with an unruly beard. The eyes were twitchy. You're Robert Jorgensen? He peered at her face, then at her ID again, turning the card over and holding it up to the light, though the laminated rectangle was opaque. He handed it back and unhooked the security bar. The door swung open. He examined the hall behind her, then gestured her in. Sax entered cautiously, hand still near her weapon. 
She checked the room and closets. The place was otherwise unoccupied, and he was unarmed. You're Robert Jorgensen? she repeated. He nodded. She then looked over the sad room more carefully. It contained a bed, desk, and chair, armchair, and ratty couch. The dark gray carpet was stained. A single pole lamp cast dim yellow light, and the shades were drawn. He was living, it seemed, out of four large suitcases and a gym bag. He had no kitchen, but a portion of the living room contained a miniature fridge and two microwaves. A coffee pot, too. His diet was largely soup and ramen noodles. A hundred manila file folders were carefully lined up against the wall. His clothes were from a different time in his life, a better time. They seemed expensive, but were threadbare and stained. The heels of the rich-looking shoes were worn down. Guessing, he lost his medical practice due to a drug or drinking problem. At the moment, he was occupied by an odd task, dissecting a large hardcover textbook. A chipped magnifying glass on a gooseneck stand was clamped to the desk, and he'd been slicing out pages and cutting them into strips. Maybe mental illness had led to his downfall. You hear about the letters? It's about time. Letters? He studied her suspiciously. You're not? I don't know about any letters. I sent them to Washington. But you do talk, don't you? All you law enforcers, you public safety people. Sure you do, you have to. Everybody talks, criminal databases and all that. I really don't know what you mean. He seemed to believe her. Well, then... His eyes went wide, looking down at her hip. Wait, is your cell phone on? Well, yes. Jesus Christ in heaven, what's wrong with you? I... Why don't you run down the street naked and tell every stranger you see your address? Take the battery out. Not just shut it off, the battery. I'm not doing that. Take it out, or you can get the hell out right now. The PDA, too, and pager. This seemed to be a deal-breaker, but she said firmly, I'm not dumping my memory. I'll do the phone and the pager. Okay, he grumbled and leaned forward as she slipped the batteries out of the two devices and shut off the PDA. Then she asked for his ID. He debated and dug out a driver's license. The address was Greenwich, Connecticut, one of the ritziest towns in the metro area. I'm not here about any letters, Mr. Jorgensen. I just have some questions. I won't take up much of your time. He gestured her toward the gamey couch and sat down on a wobbly chair at the desk. As if he couldn't help himself, he turned to the book and, with a razor knife, cut a piece off the spine. He handled the knife expertly, fast and sure. Sax was glad the desk was between them and her gun unobstructed. Mr. Jorgensen, I'm here about a crime that was committed this morning. Eh, sure, of course. Lips pursing, he glanced at Sax again and his expression was clear. Resignation and disgust. And what was I supposed to have done this time? This time? The crime was a rape and murder, but we know you weren't involved. You were here. A cruel grin. Ah, keeping track of me. Sure. Then a grimace. Damn it. This was in response to something he found or didn't find in the bit of book spine he was dissecting. He tossed it into the trash. Sachs noticed half-open garbage bags containing remnants of clothes, books, newspapers, and small boxes that had also been cut apart. 
and she glanced into the larger microwave and saw that it contained a book. Germphobic, she supposed. He noticed her gaze. Microwaving's the best way to destroy them. Bacteria? Viruses? He laughed at the question as if she were joking. He nodded at the volume in front of him. But sometimes they're really hard to find. You have to, though. You need to see what the enemy looks like. Now a nod at the microwave. And pretty soon they'll start making ones that you can't even nuke. Ah, uh, you better believe it. They, them. Sachs had been a beat cop in the patrol division for some years. A portable, they were called in cop slang. She'd worked Times Square back when it was, well, Times Square, before the place became Disneyland North. Patrolwoman Sachs had had lots of experience with the homeless and emotionally disturbed. She recognized signs of paranoid personality, maybe even schizophrenia. Do you know a DeLeon Williams? No. She offered the names of the other victims and fall guys, including Rhyme's cousin. No, never heard of any of them. He seemed to be answering truthfully. The book took all his attention for a long thirty seconds. He removed a page and held it up, grimacing again. He pitched it out. Mr. Jorgensen, this room number was found on a note near the crime scene today. The hand with the knife froze. He looked at her with scary, burning eyes. Breathlessly, he asked, Where? Where the hell did you find it? In a trash bin in Brooklyn. It was stuck to some evidence. It's possible this killer discarded it. In a ghastly whisper, he asked, You have a name? What does he look like? Tell me. He half rose and his face grew bright red. His lips trembled. Take it easy, Mr. Jorgensen. Calm down. We're not positive he's the one who left the note. Oh, he's the one. You bet he is. He leaned forward. You have a name? No. Tell me, damn it, do something for me for a change, not to me. She said firmly, If I can help you, I will, but you have to stay calm. Who are you talking about? He dropped the knife and sat back, shoulders slumped. A bitter smile spread across his face. Who? Who? Why, God, of course. God? And I'm Job. You know Job? The innocent man God tormented? All the trials he inflicted? That's nothing compared to what I've been through. Oh, it's him. He found out where I am now and wrote it down on that note of yours. I thought I'd escaped, but he's got me again. Sax thought she saw tears. She asked, What's this all about? Please tell me. Jorgensen rubbed his face. Okay. A few years ago, I was a practicing doctor, lived in Connecticut. Had a wife and two wonderful children, money in the bank, retirement plan, vacation house. A comfortable life. I was happy. But then a strange thing happened. No big deal, not at first. I applied for a new credit card to get miles in my frequent flyer program. I was making 300000 a year. I'd never missed a credit card or mortgage payment in my life, but I was rejected. Some mistake, I thought, but the company said that I was at credit risk since I'd moved three times in the past six months. Only uh, I hadn't moved at all. Somebody had gotten my name, social security number, and credit information and rented apartments as me. Then he defaulted on the rent, but not before he'd bought nearly $100,000 worth of merchandise and had it delivered to those addresses. Identity theft? Oh, the mother load of identity theft. 
God opened credit cards in my name, ran up huge bills, had the statements sent to different addresses, never paid them, of course. As soon as I'd get one straightened out, he'd do something else, and he kept getting all this information on me. God knew everything. My mother's maiden name, her birthday, my first dog's name, my first car, all the things companies want to know for passwords. He got my phone numbers and my calling card number. He ran up a $10,000 phone bill. How? He'd call time and temperature in Moscow or Singapore or Sydney and leave the phone off the hook for hours. Why? Why? Because he's God. And I'm Job. The monster bought a house in my name. A whole house. And then defaulted on it. I only found out when a lawyer working for a collection agency tracked me down at my clinic in New York and asked about making payment arrangements for the $370,000 I owed. God also ran up a quarter million in online gambling debts. He made bogus insurance claims in my name, and my malpractice carrier dropped me. I couldn't work at my clinic without insurance, and nobody would insure me. We had to sell the house, and of course every penny went to the debt quote I had run up, which was by then about $2 million. Two million? Jorgensen closed his eyes briefly. And then things got worse. My wife was hanging in there throughout all of this. It was hard, but she was with me. Until God had presents, expensive ones, sent in my name to some former nurses at the clinic, bought with my credit card, and that included invitations and suggestive comments. One of the women left a message at my home thanking me and saying she'd love to go away for the weekend. My daughter got it. She was crying uncontrollably when she told my wife. I think she believed I was innocent, but she still left me four months ago and moved in with her sister in Colorado. I'm sorry. Sorry. Oh, well, thank you very much. But I'm not through yet. Oh, no. Just after my wife left, the arrest started. It seems guns purchased with a credit card and fake driver's license in my name were used in armed robberies in East New York, New Haven, and Yonkers. One clerk was seriously wounded. The New York Bureau of Investigation arrested me. They finally let me go, but I've still got an arrest on my record. That'll be there forever. Along with the time the Drug Enforcement Agency arrested me because a check of mine was traced to the purchase of illegally imported prescription drugs. Oh, and I was actually in prison for a while. Well, no, not me, somebody that God sold fake credit cards to and a driver's license in my name. Of course, the prisoner was somebody altogether different. Who knows what his real name is? But as far as the world is concerned, government records show that Robert Samuel Jorgensen, Social Security number 92367-4182, formerly of Greenwich, Connecticut, was a prisoner. It's on my record, too. Forever. You must have followed up, called the police. He scoffed. Oh, please, you're a cop. You know where something like this falls in the priority of police work? Just above jaywalking. Did you learn anything that might help us? Anything about him, age, race, education, location? No, nothing. Everywhere I looked, there was only one person, me. He took me away from myself. Oh, they say there are safeguards, there are protections. Yes, if you lose a credit card, maybe you're protected to a point. But if somebody wants to destroy your life, there's nothing you can do about it. People believe what computers tell us. If they say you owe money, you owe money. If it says you're a bad insurance risk, you're a bad risk. The report says you have no credit, then you have no credit, even if you're a multimillionaire. We believe the data. We don't care about the truth. Uh, want to see what my most recent job was? He jumped up and opened his closet, displaying a fast-food franchise uniform. 
Jorgensen returned to his desk and set to work on the book again, muttering, I'll find you. He glanced up. Do you want to know the worst part of all? She nodded. God never lived in the apartments he rented in my name. He never took delivery of the illegal drugs or got any of the merchandise he had shipped. The police recovered everything. And he never lived in the beautiful house he bought. Get it? His only point was to torment me. He's God. I'm Job. Sachs noticed a picture on his desk. It was of Jorgensen and a blonde woman about his age, their arms around a teenage girl and young boy. The house in the background was very nice. She wondered why 522 would go to all the trouble to destroy a man's life if, in fact, their perp was behind this. Was he testing out techniques to use to get close to victims and to implicate fall guys? Was Robert Jorgensen a guinea pig? Or was 522 a cruel sociopath? What he'd done to Jorgensen might be called a non-sexual rape. I think you should find another place to live, Mr. Jorgensen. A resigned smile. I know. It's safer that way. Always be harder to find. Sachs thought to herself of an expression her father had used. She thought it described her own life view pretty well. When you move, they can't get you. He nodded at the book. You know how he found me here? This, I got a feeling. Everything started to go bad just after I bought it. I keep thinking it's got the answer. I nuked it, but that didn't work, obviously. There's got to be an answer inside. There's got to be. What are you looking for, exactly? Don't you know? No. Well, tracking devices, of course. They put them in books and clothes. Pretty soon they'll be in almost everything. So, not germs. Microwaves destroy tracking devices, she asked, playing along. Most of them you can break the antenna, too, but they're so small nowadays, almost microscopic. Jorgensen fell silent, and she realized he was staring at her intently as he considered something. He announced, You take it. What? The book. His eyes were dancing madly around the room. It's got the answer in it, the answer to everything that's happened to me. Please. You're the first one who hasn't rolled their eyes when I told them my story, the only one who hasn't looked at me like I'm mad. He sat forward. You want to get him as much as I do. You have all sorts of equipment, I'll bet. Scanning, microscopes, sensors. You can find it. And it'll lead you to him. Yes. He thrust it toward her. Well, I don't know what we're looking for. He nodded sympathetically. Oh, you don't have to tell me. That's the problem. They change things all the time. They're always one step ahead of us. But please. They. She took the book, debating about slipping it into a plastic evidence bag and attaching a chain of custody card. She wondered how loud the ridicule would be in Rhyme's townhouse. Probably better just to carry it. He leaned forward and pressed her hand hard. Thank you. He was crying again. So you'll move? she asked. He said he would and gave her the name of another transient hotel, one down on the Lower East Side. Don't write it down. Don't tell anybody. Don't mention me on the phone. They're listening all the time, you know. Call me if anything else comes to mind about God. She gave him her card. He memorized the information on it, then tore the cardboard up. He stepped into the bathroom, flushed half down the toilet. He noticed her curiosity. I'll flush the other half later. Flushing something all at once is as stupid as leaving bills in your mailbox with the red flag up. 
People are such fools. He walked her to the door, leaned close. The stink of unwashed clothing hit her. His red-rimmed eyes gazed fiercely at her. Officer, listen to me. I know you have that big gun on your hip, but that won't do any good against somebody like him. You have to get close before you can shoot him. But he doesn't have to get close at all. He can sit in a dark room somewhere, sip a glass of wine, and bring your life down in pieces. Jorgensen nodded at the book in her hand. And now that you've got that, you're infected too. Chapter 13 I've been checking the news. There are so many efficient ways to get information nowadays, and I've heard nothing about any red-headed police officers gunned down by fellow law enforcers in Brooklyn. But at the least, they're afraid. They'd be edgy now. Good. Why should I be the only one? As I walk, I reflect. How did this happen? How could it possibly have happened? This isn't good. This isn't good. This, this. They seemed to know exactly what I was doing, who my victim was, and that I was on the way to DeLeon 6832's house at just that moment. How? Running through the data permutating them, analyzing them. No, I can't understand how they did it. Not yet. I have to think some more. I don't have enough information. How can I draw conclusions if I don't have the data? How? Ah, slow down. Slow down, I tell myself. When sixteens walk quickly, they shed data, revealing all sorts of information, at least to those who are smart, who can make good deductions. Up and down the gray urban streets, Sunday no longer beautiful. An ugly day, ruined. The sunlight's harsh and tainted. The city's cold, its edges ragged. The sixteens are mocking and snide and pompous. I hate them all. But keep your head down, pretend to enjoy the day. And most of all, think. Be analytical. How would a computer, confronted with a problem, analyze the data? Think. Now, how could they have found out? One block, two blocks, three blocks, four. No answers. Only the conclusion, they're good. And another question, who exactly are they? I suppose... I'm struck with a terrible thought. Please, no. I stop and dig through my backpack. No, 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 it's gone. The post-it stuck to the evidence bag, and I forgot to pull it off before I threw everything out. The address of my favorite 16, 36948938-5330-2498, my pet, known to the world as Dr. Robert Jorgensen. I just found out where he'd fled to, trying to hide, and jotted it on a post-it. I'm furious I didn't memorize it and throw away the note. I hate myself, hate everything. How could I be so careless? I want to cry, to scream. My Robert, 3694. For two years he's been my guinea pig, my human experiment. Public records, identity theft, credit cards. But most of all, ruining him was a huge high. Orgasmic, indescribable. Like coke or heroin. Taking a perfectly normal, happy family man, a good, caring doctor, and destroying him. Well, I can't take any chances. I have to assume someone will find the note and call him. He'll flee and I'll have to let him go. Something else has been taken away from me today. I can't describe how I feel when that happens. 
its pain like fire, its fear like blind panic, its falling and knowing you'll collide with the blurring earth at any moment, but not quite yet. I blunder through the herds of antelope, these six teens roaming on their day of rest. My happiness is destroyed, my comfort gone. Whereas just hours ago I looked at everyone with benign curiosity or lust, but now I simply want to storm up to someone and slice his pale flesh thin as tomato skin with one of my eighty-nine straight razors. Maybe my Crucius brother's model from the late eighteen hundreds. It has an extra long blade, a fine stag's horn handle, and is the pride of my collection. Evidence, Mel. Let's look it over. Rhyme was referring to what had been collected in the trash can near De Leon Williams's house. Friction ridges? The first items Cooper examined for fingerprints were the plastic bags, the one holding the evidence 522 it presumably intended to plant and the bags inside, containing some still wet blood and a bloody paper towel. But there were no prints on the plastic, a disappointment since it preserves them so well. Often they're visible, not latent, and can be observed without any special chemicals or lighting. Cooper did find indications that the unsub had touched the bags with cotton gloves, the sort experienced criminals preferred to latex gloves, which retained the perp's prints inside the fingers very efficiently. Using various sprays and alternative light sources, Mel Cooper examined the rest of the items and found no prints on these either. Rhyme realized that this case, like the others he suspected 522 was behind, was different from most in that it presented two categories of evidence. First, false evidence that the killer intended to plant to implicate De Leon Williams. He'd undoubtedly made sure that none of this would lead back to himself personally. Second, real evidence that he'd left accidentally and that could very well lead to his home, such as the tobacco and the doll's hair. The bloody paper towel and wet blood were in the first category, intended to be left. Similarly, the duct tape, meant to be slipped into Williams's garage or car, would undoubtedly match strips used to gag or bind Myra Weinberg, but it would have been kept carefully protected from 522's dwelling so it didn't pick up any trace. The size 13 short track running shoe probably wasn't going to be stashed at Williams's house, but it was still planted evidence in the sense that 522 had undoubtedly used it to leave a print of a shoe similar to one of Williams's. Mel Cooper tested the shoe anyway and found some trace, beer on the tread. According to the database of fermented beverage ingredients created for the NYPD by Rhyme years ago, it was most likely Miller brand. That could be in either category, planted or real. They'd have to see what Pulaski recovered from the Myra Weinberg crime scene to know for sure. The bag also contained a computer printout of Myra's photo, probably included to suggest Williams had been stalking her online. It was therefore meant to be planted as well. Still, Rhyme had Cooper check it carefully, but a ninhydrin test revealed no fingerprints. Microscopic and chemical analyses revealed generic, untraceable paper, printed with Hewlett-Packard laser toner, also untraceable beyond the brand name. But they did make a discovery that might prove helpful. Rhyme and Cooper found something embedded in the paper, traces of Stachybotrys charterum mold. This was the infamous sick-building mold. Since the amounts found in the paper were so small, it was unlikely that 522 meant it to be planted. More likely, it came from the killer's residence or place of work. 
The presence of this mold, which was found indoors almost exclusively, meant that at least part of his home or workplace would be dark and humid. Mold can't grow in a dry location. The post-it note, also probably not intended to be planted, was a 3M brand. Not the cheap generic, but still impossible to source. Cooper had found no trace in the note other than a few more spores of the mold, which at least told them that the post-it source probably was 522. The ink was from a disposable pen sold in countless stores around the country. And that was it for the evidence, though as Cooper was jotting the results, a tech from the outside lab Rhyme used for expedited medical analysis called and reported that the preliminary test confirmed the blood found in the bags was that of Myra Weinberg. Salido took a phone call, had a brief conversation, then hung up. Zip! The DEA traced the call about Amelia to a payphone. Nobody saw the caller, and nobody on the expressway saw anyone running. The canvas at the two closest subway stations didn't turn up anything suspicious around the time he got away. Well, he's not going to do anything suspicious now, is he? What did the canvassers think? An escaping murderer would jump a turnstile or strip his clothes off and change into a superhero outfit? Just telling you what they said, Link. Grimacing, he asked Tom to write the results of the search up on the whiteboard. Street near DeLeon Williams's house. Three plastic bags, Ziploc freezer style, one gallon. One right size 13 sure track running shoe, dried beer and tread, probably Miller brand. No wear marks, no other discernible trace. Bought to leave imprint at scene of crime? Paper towel with blood and plastic bag. Preliminary test confirms it's the victim's. Two cc's blood and plastic bag. Preliminary test confirms it's the victim's. Post it with address of the Henderson House residence. Room 672. Occupied by Robert Jorgensen. Note in pen untraceable. Paper untraceable. Evidence of stachybotrys charterum mold in paper. Picture of victim. Apparently computer printout. Color. Hewlett-Packard printer ink. Otherwise, untraceable. Paper, untraceable. Evidence of stachybotrys charterum mold in paper. Duct tape. Home Depot, house brand, not traceable to particular location. No friction ridge prints. The doorbell rang, and Ron Pulaski walked briskly into the room, carrying two milk crates containing plastic bags, evidence from the scene where Myra Weinberg had been killed. Rhyme noted immediately that his expression had changed. His face was still. Pulaski often cringed or seemed perplexed or occasionally looked proud. He even blushed. But now his eyes seemed hollow, not at all like the determined gaze of earlier. He glanced at Rhyme with a nod, walked sullenly to the examination tables, handed off the evidence to Cooper, and gave him the chain of custody cards, which the tech signed. The rookie stepped back looking over the whiteboard chart Tom had created. Hands in his jeans pockets, Hawaiian shirt untucked, he wasn't seeing a single word. You all right, Pulaski? Sure. You don't look all right, Salito said. Nah, it's nothing. But that wasn't true. Something about running his first solo homicide scene had upset him. Finally, he said, She was just lying there, face up, staring at the ceiling. It's like she was alive and looking for something. Frowning, kind of curious. I guess I expected her to be covered up. Yeah, well, you know we don't do that, Salito muttered. 
Pulaski looked out the window. The thing is... Okay, it's crazy. It's just she looked a little like Jenny, his wife. Kind of weird. Lincoln Rhyme and Amelia Sachs were similar in many ways when it came to their work. They felt you needed to summon empathy in searching crime scenes, which allowed you to feel what the perp and the victim experienced. This helped to better understand the scene and find evidence you otherwise might not. Those who had this skill, as howering as its consequences might be, were masters at walking the grid. But Rhyme and Sachs differed in one important aspect. Sachs believed it was important never to become numb to the horror of crime. You needed to feel it every time you went to a scene, and afterward. If you didn't, she said, your heart grew hard. You moved closer to the darkness within the people you pursued. Rhyme, on the other hand, felt you should be as dispassionate as possible. Only by coldly putting aside the tragedy could you be the best police officer you could, and more efficiently stop future tragedies from occurring. It's not a human being anymore, he'd lectured his new recruits. It's a source of evidence, and a damn good one. Pulaski had the potential to be more like Rhyme, the criminalist believed, but at this early stage of his career, he fell into Amelia Sachs's camp. Rhyme felt for the young man now, but they had a case to solve. At home tonight, Pulaski could hold his wife close and silently mourn the death of the woman she resembled. He asked gruffly, You with us, Pulaski? Yes, sir, I'm fine. Not exactly, but Rhyme had made his point. You processed the body? A nod. I was there with the Emmy's tour doctor. We did it together. I made sure he wore rubber bands on his booties. To avoid confusion when it came to footprints, Rhyme had a policy of his crime scene searchers putting rubber bands around their feet, even when they were in the hooded plastic jumpsuits worn to prevent contamination from their own hair, skin cells, and other trays. Good. Rhyme then glanced eagerly at the milk crates. Let's get going. We ruined one plan of his. Maybe he's mad about it and is out targeting somebody else. Maybe he's buying a ticket to Mexico. Either way, I want to move fast. The young cop flipped open his notebook. I... Tom, come on in here. Tom, where the hell are you? Oh, sure, Lincoln, said the aide with a cheerful smile walking into the room. Always happy to drop everything in the face of such polite requests. We need you again, another chart. Do you? Please. You don't mean it. Tom. All right. Myra Weinberg homicide scene. The aide wrote the heading and stood ready with the marker as Rhyme asked, Now, Pulaski, I understand it wasn't her apartment? That's right, sir. A couple owned it. They're on vacation on a cruise ship. I managed to get through to them. They'd never heard of Myra Weinberg. Man, you should have heard them. They were way upset. They didn't have any idea who it might have been. And to get in, he broke the lock. So he knew it was empty and there was no alarm, Cooper said. Interesting. What do you think? Salito was shaking his head. He just picked it for location? It was real deserted around there, Pulaski put in. And what was she doing, do you think? I found her bike outside. She had a kryptonite key in her pocket and it fit. Biking. Could be that he checked out her route and knew she'd be by there at a certain time. And somehow he knew the couple were going to be away so he wouldn't have any disturbances. Okay, rookie, run through what you found. Tom, if you would be so kind as to write this down. You're trying too hard. Ha, huh, 
Cause of death? Rime asked Pulaski. I told the doctor to have the medical examiner expedite the autopsy results. Salito laughed gruffly. And what did he say to that? Something like, yeah, right, and a couple other things, too. You need a bit more starch in your collar before you can make requests like that, but I appreciate the effort. What was the preliminary? He looked over his notes. Suffered several blows to the head. To subdue her, the M.E. thought. The young officer paused, perhaps recalling his own similar injury a few years ago. He continued. Cause of death was strangulation. There were patechiae in the eyes and inside the eyelids. Pinpoint hemorrhages. I know what they are, rookie. Oh, sure. Right. And venous distension in the scalp and face. This is the probable murder weapon. He held up a bag containing a length of rope about four feet long. Mal? Cooper took the rope and carefully opened it over a large sheet of clean newsprint, dusting to dislodge trace. He then examined what he'd found and took a few samples of the fibers. What? I asked impatiently. Checking. The rookie took refuge in his notes again. As far as the rape, it was vaginal and anal. Post-mortem, the tour doctor thought. Posing in the body? No, but one thing I noticed, detective, Pulaski said. All her fingernails were long, except one. It was cut really short. Blood? Yes, it was cut right down to the quick. He hesitated. Probably pre-mortem. So 522's a bit of a sadist, Rhyme reflected. He likes pain. Check the other crime scene photos from the earlier rape. The young officer hurried off to find the pictures. He shuffled through them and found one, squinting. Look at this, detective. Yeah, he cut off a fingernail there, too. The same finger. Our boy likes trophies. That's good to know. Pulaski nodded enthusiastically. And think about it, the wedding ring finger. Probably something about his past. Maybe his wife left him. Maybe he was neglected by his mother or a mother figure. Good point, Pulaski. Reminds me, we forgot something else. What's that, sir? Did you check your horoscope this morning before we started the investigation? My... Oh, and who got the tea-leaf reading assignment? I forget. Salito was chuckling. Pulaski was blushing. Rhyme snapped. Psychological profiling isn't helpful. What's helpful about the nail is knowing that 522 now has in his possession a DNA connection to the crime. Not to mention that if we can decide what kind of implement he used to remove the trophy, we might be able to trace the purchase and find him. Evidence, rookie, not psychobabble. Sure, detective, got it. Lincoln is fine. Okay, sure. The rope, Mel? Cooper was scrolling through the fiber database. Generic hemp, available in thousands of retail outlets around the country. He ran a chemical analysis. No trace. Crap. What else, Pulaski? Salito asked. He went through the list. Fishing line, binding her hands and cutting through the skin, which resulted in the bleeding. Duct tape covered her mouth. The tape was Home Depot brand, of course, torn off the roll 522 had ditched. The ragged ends matched perfectly. Two unopened condoms were discovered near the body, the young officer explained, holding up the bag. They were Trojan Ends brand. And here are the swabs. Mel Cooper took the plastic evidence bags and checked the vaginal and rectal swabs. 
The Emmy's office would give a more detailed report, but it was clear that among the substances were traces of a spermicidal lubricant similar to that used with the condoms. There was no semen anywhere at the scene. Another swab from the floor, where Pulaski found the treadmark of a running shoe, revealed beer. It proved to be Miller brand. The electrostatic image of the tread was, naturally, a size 13 sure track right shoe, the same that 522 had ditched in the trash can. And the owners of the loft had no beer, right? You did search the kitchen and pantry. Right, yes, sir, and I didn't find any. Lon Salito was nodding. Bet you ten bucks that Miller is de Leon's brew of choice. I won't take you up on that one, Lon. What else was there? Pulaski held up a plastic bag containing a brown fleck that he'd found just above the victim's ear. Analysis revealed it to be tobacco. What's the story with that, Mel? The tech's examination revealed that it was a fine-cut piece, the sort used in cigarettes, but it was not the same as the Tarryton sampler in the database. Lincoln Rhyme was one of the few non-smokers in the country who decried the bans on smoking. Tobacco and ash were wonderful forensic links between criminal and crime scene. Cooper couldn't tell the brand. He decided, though, that because the tobacco was so desiccated, it was probably old. Did Myra smoke? Were the people in the loft? I didn't see any evidence of it, and I did what you're always telling us. I smelled the scene when I got there. No smell of smoking. Good. Ryan was pleased with the search so far. What's the friction ridge situation? Checked fingerprint samples of the homeowners from the medicine cabinet and things in the bedside table. So you weren't fudging. You really did read my book. Ryma devoted a number of paragraphs in his forensic text to the importance of collecting control prints at crime scenes and where to best find them. Yes, sir. I'm so pleased. Did I make any royalties? I borrowed my brother's. Pulaski's twin was a cop down at the 6th Precinct in Greenwich Village. Let's hope he paid for it. Most of the prints found in the loft were the couples, which they determined from the samples. The others were probably from visitors, but it wasn't impossible that 522 had been careless. Cooper scanned all of them into the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System. The results would be available soon. Okay, tell me, Pulaski, what was your impression of the scene? The question seemed to throw him. Impression? Those are the trees. Rhyme lowered his eyes toward the evidence bags. What did you think of the forest? The young officer thought. Well, I did have a thought. It's stupid, though. You know, I'll be the first one to say if you've come up with a stupid theory, rookie. It's just, when I first got there, my impression was that the struggle seemed off. How do you mean? See, her bike was chained to a lamppost outside the loft, like she'd parked it, not thinking anything was wrong. So he didn't just grab her on the street? Right, and to get into the loft you went through a gate and then down a long corridor to the front door. It was real narrow and it was packed with things the couple stored outside. Jars and cans, sports things, some stuff to be recycled, tools for their garden. But nothing was disturbed. He tapped another photo. But look inside, that's where the struggle began, the table and the vases, right by the front door. His voice went soft again. Looks like she fought real hard. Rhyme nodded. All right, so 522 lures her to the loft, smooth-talking her. She locks up the bike, walks down the corridor, and they go into the loft. 
She stops in the entryway, sees he's lying, and tries to get out. He considered this. So he must have known enough about Myra to put her at ease and make her feel that she could trust him. Sure, think about it. He's got all this information about who people are, what people buy, when they're on vacation, whether they have alarms, where they're going to be. Not bad, rookie. Now we know something concrete about him. Pulaski struggled to keep a smile off his face. Cooper's computer dinged. He read the screen. No hints on the prince. Zero. Rhyme shrugged, not surprised. I'm interested in this idea that he knows so much. Somebody give DeLeon Williams a call. Was 522 right about all the evidence? Salido's brief conversation revealed that, yes, Williams wore size 13 shirt track shoes. He regularly bought Trojan Ends brand condoms. He had 40-pound fishing line. He drank Miller beer. And he'd recently been to Home Depot for duct tape and hemp rope to use as a tie-down. Looking at the evidence chart of the earlier rape, Rhyme noted that the condoms used by 522 in that crime were Durex. The killer had used those because Joseph Knightley bought that brand. On the speakerphone, he asked Williams, Is one of your shoes missing? No. Salito said, So he bought a pair. Same type, same size as you've got. How'd he know that? Have you seen anybody on your property recently, maybe in your garage, going through your car or trash? Or have you had a break-in recently? No, we sure haven't. I'm out of work here and most days taking care of the house. I'd know, and it's not the best neighborhood in the world. We've got an alarm. We always put it on. Rhyme thanked him and they disconnected. He stretched his head back and gazed at the chart as he dictated to Tom what to write. Myra Weinberg Crime Scene COD. Strangulation. Awaiting final medical examiner report. No mutilation or arranging of body, but ring fingernail, left hand, was cut short. Possible trophy. Premortem, most likely. Condom lubricant from Trojan ends. Unopened condoms, two Trojan ends. No used condoms or body fluids. Traces of Miller beer on floor, source other than crime scene. Fishing line, 40-pound monofilament, generic brand. Four-foot length of brown hemp rope, MW. Duct tape on mouth. Tobacco flake, old from unidentified brand. Footprint, short track man's running shoe, size 13. No fingerprints. Rhyme asked, Our boy called 911, right, to report the Dodge? Yeah, Salito confirmed. Find out about the call, what he said, what his voice sounded like. The detective added, The early cases, too. Your cousins and the coin theft and earlier rape. Good, sure, I didn't think about that. Salito got in touch with Central Dispatch. 911 calls are recorded and kept for varying periods of time. He requested the information. Ten minutes later, he received a callback. The 911 reports from Arthur's case and today's murder were still in the system, the dispatch supervisor reported and had been sent to Cooper's email address as WAVE files. The earlier cases had been sent to archives on CD. It could take days to find them, but an assistant had sent in a request for them. When the audio files arrived, Cooper opened and played them. They were of a male voice telling the police to hurry to an address where he'd heard screaming. He described the getaway vehicles. The voices sounded identical. Voice print? Cooper asked. If we get a suspect, we can compare it. 
voice prints were more highly regarded in the forensic world than lie detectors and were admissible in some courts, depending on the judge. But Rhyme shook his head. Listen to it. He's talking through a box, can't you tell? A box is a device that disguises a caller's voice. It doesn't produce a weird Darth Vader sound. The timbre is normal, if a little hollow. Many directory assistants and customer service operations use them to make employees' voices uniform. It was then that the door opened and Amelia Sachs strode into the parlor, carrying a large object under her arm. Rhyme couldn't tell what it was. She nodded, then gazed at the evidence chart, saying to Pulaski, Looks like a good job. Thanks. Rhyme noted that what she held was a book. It seemed half disassembled. What the hell is that? A present from our doctor friend, Robert Jorgensen. What is it, evidence? Hard to say. It was really an odd experience talking to him. What do you mean by odd, Amelia? Salito asked. Think that, boy. Elvis and aliens behind the Kennedy assassination. That sort of odd. Pulaski exhaled a fast laugh, drawing a withering look from Lincoln Rhyme. Chapter 14 she told a story of a troubled man whose identity had been stolen and his life ruined, a man who described his nemesis as God and himself as Job. Clearly he was unhinged. Odd didn't go far enough. Yet if even partly true, his story was moving and hard to listen to, a life completely in tatters and the crime pointless. But then Sachs caught Rhymes' complete attention when she said, Jorgensen claims the man behind it's been keeping track of him ever since he bought this book two years ago. He seems to know everything he's doing. Knows everything, Rhyme repeated, looking at the evidence charts. Just what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Getting all the information he needs on the victims and the fall guys. He filled her in on what they'd learned. She handed the book to Mel Cooper and told him Jorgensen believed it held a tracking device. Tracking device? Rhyme scoffed. He's been watching too many Oliver Stone movies. All right, search it if you want, but let's not neglect the real leads. Sachs's calls to the police in the various jurisdictions where Jorgensen had been victimized weren't productive. Yes, there'd been identity theft, no question. But, one cop in Florida asked, you know how much of this goes on? We find a fake residence and raid it, but by the time we get there, it's empty. They've taken all the merch they'd charged to the Vic's account and headed off to Texas or Montana. Most of them had heard of Jorgensen. He sure writes a lot of letters, and were sympathetic. But none had any specific leads to an individual or gang who might have been behind the crimes, and they couldn't devote nearly enough time to the cases as they would have liked. We could have another hundred people on staff and still not be able to make any headway. After she'd hung up, Sachs explained that since 522 knew Jorgensen's address, she told the residence hotel clerk to let her know immediately if anyone called or came around asking about him. If the clerk agreed, Sachs would neglect to bring up the residence hotel with the city's building inspection office. Nicely done, Rhyme said. You knew there were violations? Not until he agreed at, oh, about the speed of light. Sachs walked to the evidence that Pulaski had gotten from the loft near Soho, looking it over. Any thoughts, Amelia? Salito asked. She stood staring at the boards, one fingernail taking on another, as she tried to make sense out of the disparate collection of clues. Where do you get this? 
She picked up the bag containing the printout of Myra Weinberg's face, looking sweet and amused, her eyes on the camera that had snapped her picture. We should find out. Good point. Rhyme hadn't considered the source of the picture, merely that 522 had downloaded it from a website somewhere. He'd been more interested in the paper as a source of clues. In the photo, Myra Weinberg was standing beside a flowering tree, gazing back at the camera, a smile on her face. She was holding a pink drink in a martini glass. Rhyme noticed Pulaski gazing at the picture, too, his eyes troubled again. The thing is, she looked a little like Jenny. Rhyme noted distinctive borders and what appeared to be the strokes of some letters to the right disappearing out of frame. He'd have got it online to make it look like DeLeon Williams was checking her out. Salido said, Maybe we could trace him through the site he downloaded it from. How can we tell where he got it? Google her name, Rhyme suggested. Cooper tried this and found a dozen hits, several referring to a different Myra Weinberg. The ones that related to the victim were all professional organizations, but none of the photos of her was similar to the one that 522 had printed out. Sack said, Got an idea. Let me call my computer expert. Who, that guy at Computer Crimes? Salido asked. No, somebody even better than him. She picked up the phone and dialed a number. Pammy, hi, where are you? Good, I've got an assignment. Go online for a web chat. We'll do audio by phone. Sachs turned to Cooper. Can you boot up your webcam, Mel? The tech typed, and a moment later, his monitor filled with an image of Pam's room at her foster parents' house in Brooklyn. The face of the pretty teenager appeared as she sat down. The image was slightly distorted by the wide-angle lens. Hi, Pam. Hi, Mr. Cooper, came the lilting voice through the speakerphone. I'll take over, Sack said, and replaced Cooper at the keyboard. Honey, we found a picture, and we think it came from the Internet. Could you take a look and tell us if you know where? Sure. Sax held up the sheet to the webcam. It's kind of glary. Can you take it out of the plastic? The detective pulled on latex gloves and carefully slipped the sheet out, held it up again. That's better. Sure. It's from our world. What's that? You know, a social networking site like Facebook and MySpace. It's the hot new one. Everybody's on it. You know about those rhyme? Sax asked. He gave a nod. Curiously, he'd been thinking about this recently. He'd read an article in the New York Times about networking sites and virtual existence worlds like Second Life. He'd been surprised to learn that people were spending less time in the outside world and more in the virtual, from avatars to these social networking sites to telecommuting. Apparently, teenagers today spent less time out of doors than in any other period in U.S. history. Ironically, thanks to an exercise regimen that was improving his physical condition and his changing attitudes, Rhyme himself was becoming less virtual and was venturing out more. The dividing line between abled and disabled was blurring. Sachs now asked Pam, You can tell for sure it's from that site? Yeah, they've got that special border. If you look close, it's not just a line, it's little globes like the Earth over and over again. Rhyme squinted. Yes, the border was just as she described it. He thought back, recalling our world from the article. Hello, Pam. There are a lot of members, aren't there? Oh, hi, Mr. Rhyme. Yeah, like 30 or 40 million people. Whose realm is that one? 
Realm? Sax asked. That's what they call your page, your realm? Who is she? I'm afraid she was killed today, Sax said evenly. That's the case I told you about earlier. Rhyme wouldn't have mentioned the murder to a teenager, but this was Sax's call. She'd know what to share and what not to. Oh, I'm sorry. Pam was sympathetic, but not shocked or dismayed by the hard truth. Rhyme asked, Pam, can anybody log on and get into your realm? Well, you're supposed to join, but if you don't want to post anything or host your own realm, you can crack in just to look around. So you'd say that the man who printed this out knows computers? Yeah, he'd have to, I guess, only he didn't print it out. What? You can't print or download anything, even with the print screen command. There's a filter on the system to prevent stalkers, you know, and you can't crack it. It's like what protects copyrighted books online. Then how did he get the picture? Rhyme asked. Pam laughed. Oh, he probably did what we all do at school if we want a shot of a cute guy or some weird goth chick. We just take a picture of the screen with a digital camera. Everybody does that. Sure, Rhyme said, shaking his head. Never occurred to me. Oh, don't worry, Mr. Rhyme, the girl said. A lot of times people miss the obvious answer. Sax glanced at Rhyme, who smiled at the girl's reassurance. Okay, Pam, thanks. I'll see you later. Bye. Let's fill in the portrait of our friend. Sax picked up the marker and stepped to the whiteboard. Unsub 522 profile. Male. Possibly smokes or lives works with someone who does or near source of tobacco. Has children or lives works near them or near source of toys. Interest in art. Coins. Probably white or light-skinned ethnic. Medium build. Strong. Able to strangle victims. Access to voice disguise equipment. Possibly computer literate. Knows our world. Other social networking sites. Takes trophies from victims. Sadist? Portion of residence workplace dark and moist. Non-planted evidence. Dust. Old cardboard. Hair from doll, BASF B35 Nylon 6. Tobacco from Tarryton cigarettes. Old tobacco, not Tarryton, but brand unknown. Evidence of Stacky Boatrice Charterum mold. Rhyme was looking over the details when he heard Mel Cooper laugh. Well, well, well. What? This is interesting. Be specific. I don't need interesting. I need facts. It's still interesting. The lab man had been shining a bright light on the slit open spine of Robert Jorgensen's book. You were thinking the doctor was crazy, talking about tracking devices? Well, guess what? Oliver Stone may have a movie here. There is something implanted in it, in the spine tape. Really? Sax said, shaking her head. I thought he was nuts. Let me see, Rhyme said. His curiosity peaked and skepticism on temporary hold. Cooper moved a small high-definition camera closer to the examining table and hit the book with an infrared light. It revealed underneath the tape a tiny rectangle of crisscrossed lines. Take it out, Rhyme said. Carefully, Cooper slit the spine tape and removed what appeared to be an inch-long piece of plasticized paper printed with what looked like computer circuit lines. Also, a series of numbers and the manufacturer's name, DMS Incorporated. Salito asked, The hell is it? Really a tracking device? 
I don't see how. There's no battery or power source that I can find, Cooper said. Mel, look up the company. A fast business search revealed it was Data Management Systems, based outside Boston. He read a description of the outfit, one division of which manufactured these little devices known as RFID tags for radio frequency identification. I've heard about those, Pulaski said. It was on CNN. Oh, the definitive source for forensic knowledge, Rhyme said cynically. No, that's CSI, Salito said, drawing another aborted laugh from Ron Pulaski. Sachs asked, what does it do? This is interesting. Again, interesting. Essentially, it's a programmable chip that can be read by a radio scanner. They don't need a battery. The antenna picks up the radio waves, and that gives them enough juice to work. Sachs said, Jorgensen was talking about breaking off antennas to disable them. He also said you could destroy some of them in a microwave, but that one, she gestured, he couldn't nuke. Or so he said. Cooper continued. They're used for inventory control by manufacturers and retailers. In the next few years, nearly every product sold in the U.S. will have its own RFID tag. Some major retailers already require them before they'll stock a product line. Sachs laughed. That's just what Jorgensen was telling me. Maybe he wasn't as national inquirer as I thought. Every product? Rhyme asked. Yep. So stores know where the stuff in inventory is, how much stock they have, what's selling faster than other things, when to restock the shelves, when to reorder. They're also used for baggage handling by airlines so they know where your luggage is without having to visually scan the barcode. And they're used in credit cards, driver's license, employee IDs. They're called smart cards then. Jorgensen wanted to see my department ID. He looked it over real carefully. Maybe that's what he was interested in. They're all over the place, Cooper continued. In those discount cards you use in grocery stores and frequent flyer cards and tollbooth smart pass transponders. Sachs nodded at the evidence boards. Think about it, Rhyme. Jorgensen was talking about this man he called God, knowing all about his life. Enough to steal his identity, to buy things in his name, take out loans, get credit cards, find out where he was. Rhyme felt the excitement of moving forward in the hunt. And 522 knows enough about his victims to get close to them, get inside their defenses. He knows enough about the fall guys to plant evidence that's identical to what they have at home. And, Salito added, he knows exactly where they were at the time of the crime, so they won't have an alibi. Sachs looked over the tiny tag. Jorgensen said his life started to fall apart around the time he got that book. Where'd he buy it? Any receipts or price stickers, Mel? Nope. If there were, he cut them out. Call Jorgensen back. Let's get him in here. Sachs pulled out her phone and called the transient hotel where she'd just met with him. She was frowning. Already? she asked the clerk. Doesn't bode well, Rhyme reflected. He's moved out, she said after hanging up. But I know where he's going. She found a slip of paper, placed another call. Though after a brief conversation, she hung up, sighing. Jorgensen wasn't at that hotel either, she said. He hadn't even called to make a reservation. Do you have a cell number? He doesn't have a phone. He doesn't trust them. But he knows my number. If we're lucky, he'll call. Sachs walked closer to the tiny device. Mel, cut the wire off, the antenna. What? 
Jorgensen said, now that we've got the book, we're infected too. Cut it off. Cooper shrugged and glanced at Rhyme, who thought the idea was absurd. Still, Amelia Sachs didn't spook easily. Sure, go ahead. Just make a notation on the chain of custody card, evidence rendered safe. A phrase usually reserved for bombs and handguns. Rhyme then lost interest in the RFID. He looked up. All right. Until we hear from him, let's speculate. Come on, folks, be ballsy. I need some thoughts here. We've got a perp who can get his hands on all this goddamn information about people. How? He knows everything the Fall Guys bought. Fishing line, kitchen knife, shave cream, fertilizer, condoms, duct tape, rope, beer. There have been four victims and four Fall Guys, at least. He can't follow everybody around. He doesn't break into their houses. Maybe he's a clerk at one of those big discount stores, Cooper suggested. But DeLeon bought some of the evidence at Home Depot. You can't buy condoms at snack food there. Maybe 522 works for a credit card company, Pulaski suggested. He can see what people buy that way. Not bad, rookie, but some of the time the Vicks must have paid cash. It was Tom, surprisingly, who provided one answer. He fished out his keys. I heard Mel mention the discount cards earlier. He displayed several small plastic cards on his keychain, one for A&P, one for Food Emporium. I swipe the card and get a discount. Even if I pay cash, the store still knows what I bought. Good, Rhyme said, but where do we go from there? We're still looking at dozens of different sources the victims and fall guys shopped at. Ah. Rhyme looked at Sachs, who was staring at the evidence board with a faint smile on her face. I think I've got it. What? Rhyme asked, expecting the clever application of a forensic principle. Shoes, she said simply. The answer's shoes. Chapter 15 It's not just about knowing generally what people buy, Sachs explained. It's knowing the specifics about all the Vicks and the Fall Guys. Look at three of the crimes. Your cousin's case the Myra Weinberg case, and the coin theft. 522 not only knew the kind of shoe the Fall Guys wore, he knew the sizes. Rhyme said, Good, let's find out where DeLeon Williams and Arthur buy their footwear. A fast call to Judy Rhyme and one to Williams revealed that the shoes were bought mail order, one through a catalog, one through a website, but both directly from the companies. All right, Rhyme said, pick one, give them a call, and find out how the shoe business works. Flip a coin. Short track one, and it took only four phone calls to reach somebody connected with the company, the president and CEO, no less. Water was sounding in the background, splashing, children laughing, as the man asked uncertainly, A crime? Nothing to do with you directly, Rhyme reassured him. One of your products is evidence. But not like that guy who tried to blow up the airplane with a bomb in his shoe? He stopped talking, as if even bringing this up was a breach of national security. Rhyme explained the situation. The killer's getting personal information about the victims, including specifics about sure-track shoes, as well as his cousins Alton's and the other Fall Guys' bass walkers. Do you sell through retail locations? No, only online. Do you share information with your competitors, information about customers? A hesitation. Hello? Rhyme asked the silence. 
Oh, we can't share information. That would be an antitrust violation. Well, how could somebody have gotten access to information about customers of SureTrack shoes? That's a complicated situation. Rhyme grimaced. Sachs said, Sir, the man we're after is a killer and rapist. Do you have any thoughts about how he could have learned about your customers? Not really. Lancelito barked. Then we'll get a warrant and take your records apart line by line. Not the subtle way Rhyme would have handled it, but the sledgehammer approach worked just fine. The man blurted, Wait, 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 I might have an idea. Which is? Salito snapped. Maybe he... Okay, if he had information from different companies, maybe he got it from a data miner. What's that? Rhyme asked. This pause was one of surprise, it seemed. You never heard of them? Rhyme rolled his eyes. No, what are they? What it sounds like, information service companies, they dig through data about consumers, their purchases and houses and cars, credit histories, everything about them. They analyze it and sell it, you know, to help companies spot market trends, find new customers, target direct mail pieces and plan advertising, things like that. Everything about them. Rhyme thought, maybe we're onto something here. Do they get information from RFID chips? Sure they do. That's one of the big sources for data. What data miner does your company use? Oh, I don't know. Several of them. His voice was reticent. We really need to know, Sachs said, playing good cop to Salito's bad. We don't want anybody else to get hurt. This man is very dangerous. A sigh floated over the man's debate. Well, I suppose SSD is the main one. They're pretty big, but if you're thinking that somebody from there was involved in the crime, <laughs> impossible. They're the greatest guys in the world. And there's security, there's... Where are they based? Sachs asked. Another hesitation. Come on, damn it, Rhyme thought. In New York City. 522's playground. The criminalist caught Sachs' eye. He smiled. This was looking promising. Any others in the area? No, Axicom, Experian, and Choice Point. The other big ones aren't around here, but believe me, nobody from SSD could be involved. I swear. What does SSD stand for? Rhyme asked. Strategic Systems Data Corp. Do you have a contact there? Not anybody in particular, exactly. He said this fast. Too fast. You don't? Well, there are sales reps we deal with. I can't recall their names at the moment. I could check it and find out. Who runs the company? Another pause. That would be Andrew Sterling. He's the founder and CEO. Look, I guarantee nobody there would do anything illegal. Impossible. Then Rhyme realized something. The man was scared. Not of the police, of SSD itself. What are you worried about? It's just... In a confessional tone, he said, We couldn't function without them. We're really partnered with them. Though from his tone, the spurious verb seemed to mean desperately dependent on. We'll be discreet, Sachs said. Thank you, really, thank you. The relief was obvious. Sachs politely thanked him for his cooperation, drawing an eye roll from Salido. Rhyme disconnected. Data mining. Anybody heard of it? 
Tom said, I don't know SSD, but I've heard of data miners. It's the business of the 21st century. Rhyme glanced at the evidence chart. So if 522 works for SSD or is one of their customers, he could find out everything he'd need about who bought shave cream, rope, condoms, fishing line, all the evidence he could plant. Then another idea struck him. The head of the shoe company said that they sell the data for mailing lists. Arthur had gotten some direct mail about the Prescott painting, remember? 522 could have found out about it from their mailing lists. Maybe Alice Sanderson was on a list, too. And look, the crime scene photos. Sachs walked to the whiteboards and pointed to several pictures from the coin theft scene. Direct mail pieces sat prominently on the tables and floor. Pulaski said, And, sir, Detective Cooper mentioned Easy Pass. If this SSD mines their data, then the killer might have been able to find out exactly when your cousin was in the city and when he headed home. Jesus, Salito muttered. If it's true, this guy stumbled on one hell of an M.O. Check out this data mining mail. Google it. I want to know for sure if SSD is the only one in the area. A few keystrokes later. Hmm, I got over 20 million hits for data mining. 20 million? Over the next hour, the team watched as Cooper narrowed the list of the top data miners in the country. About a half dozen. He downloaded hundreds of pages of information from their sites and other details. Comparing the various data miners' client lists with the products used as evidence in the 522 case, it appeared that SSD was the most likely single source of all the information and was, in fact, the only one based in or near New York. If you want, Cooper said, I can download their sales brochure. Oh, we want mail. Let's see it. Sachs sat next to Rhyme, and they looked over the screen as the SSD website appeared, topped by the company's logo. A watchtower with a window from which radiated lines of illumination. Strategic Systems Data Core. Finding your windows of opportunity. Knowledge is power. The most valuable commodity in the 21st century is information, and SSD is the number one leader in using knowledge to handcraft your strategies to redefine your goals, and to help you structure solutions to meet the myriad challenges you'll be facing in today's world. With more than 4,000 clients in the U.S. and abroad, SSD sets the industry standard as the preeminent knowledge service provider on Earth. The Database Inner Circle is the largest private database in the world, with key information on 280 million Americans and 130 million citizens of other countries. Inner Circle resides on our proprietary Massively Parallel Computer Array Network, MPCAN, the most powerful commercial computer system ever assembled. Inner Circle presently holds more than 500 petabytes of information. That equals trillions of pages of data, and we anticipate that soon the system will grow to an exabyte of data, an amount so vast that it would take only five exabytes to store the transcript of every word spoken by every human being in history. We have troves of personal and public information, telephone numbers, addresses, vehicle registration, licensing information, buying histories and preferences, travel profiles, government records, and vital statistics, credit and income histories, and much, much more. We get these data into your hands at the speed of light in a form that's easily accessible and instantly usable, uniquely tailored to your specific needs. 
Inner Circle grows at the rate of hundreds of thousands of entries a day. The Tools Watchtower DBM, the most comprehensive database management system in the world. Your partner in strategic planning, Watchtower helps you target your goals, extracts the most meaningful data from Inner Circle, and delivers a winning strategy directly to your desk, 24-7, via our lightning-fast and super-secure servers. Watchtower meets and exceeds the standards that SQL set years ago. Expectation Predictive Behavior Software based on the latest artificial intelligence and modeling technology. Manufacturers, service providers, wholesalers, and retailers. Want to know where your market is going and what your customers will want in the future? Then this is the product for you. And law enforcers, take note. With expectation, you can predict where and when crimes will occur. And, most important, who is likely to commit them. Fort, Finding Obscure Relationships Tool, a unique and revolutionary product which analyzes millions of seemingly unrelated facts to determine connections human beings couldn't possibly discover on their own. Whether you're a commercial company wishing to know more about the marketplace or about your competitors, or a law enforcement organization faced with a difficult criminal case, Fort will give you the edge. Consumer choice monitoring software and equipment allows you to determine consumers' accurate responses to advertising, marketing programs, and new or proposed products. Forget subjective focus group opinions. Now, through biometric monitoring, you can gather and analyze individuals' true feelings about your potential plans, often without their awareness that they're being observed. Hub Overview Information Consolidation Software this easy-to-use product allows you to control every database within your organization and, in appropriate circumstances, within other companies' operations as well. Safeguard Security and Identity Verification Software and Services Whether your concerns are terrorist threats, corporate kidnapping, industrial espionage, or employee or customer theft, Safeguard assures that your facilities will remain secure, letting you concentrate on your core business. This division includes the world's leading background verification, security, and substance screening companies used by corporate and government clients throughout the world. The Safeguard division of SSD is also home to the industry leader in biometric hardware and software, BioCheck. NanoCure Medical Research Software and Services Welcome to the world of microbiologic intelligence systems for the diagnosis and treatment of illness. Working with MDs, our nanotechnologists are crafting solutions to the common health problems facing today's populace, from monitoring genetic issues to developing injectable tags to help in detecting and curing persistent deadly illnesses. Our nanocure division is working to create a healthy society. On trial civil litigation support systems and services. From products liability to antitrust cases, on trial streamlines document handling and deposition and evidence control. Public Sure Law Enforcement Support Software. This is the system for the consolidation and management of criminal and allied public records stored in international, federal, state, and local databases. Through Public Sure, search results can be downloaded to offices, patrol car computers, PDAs, or cell phones within seconds of the request, helping investigators bring cases to speedy conclusions and enhancing the preparedness and security of officers in the field. EduServe, Scholastic Support Software and Services. 
Managing what children learn is vital in a successful society. EduServe helps school boards and teachers in facilities from K-12 to most efficiently utilize their resources and offer services that guarantee the best education per tax dollar spent. Rhyme laughed in disbelief. If 522 can get his hands on all this information, well, he's the man who knows everything. Mel Cooper said, Okay, listen to this. I was looking at the companies that SSD owns. Guess one of them. Rhyme replied, I'll go with whatever the hell their initials were. DMS, the maker of that RFID tag in the book, right? Yep, you got it. No one said anything for some moments. Rhyme noticed everyone in the room was looking at the glowing window logo of SSD on the computer screen. So, Salito muttered, eyes on the chart, where do we go from here? Surveillance, suggested Pulaski. That makes sense, Salito said. I'll give SNS a call, set up some teams. Rhyme gave a cynical glance. Surveillance at a company with what, a thousand employees? He shook his head, then asked, You know Occam's razor, Lon? Who the hell is Occam, a barber? A philosopher, the razor's a metaphor, cutting away unnecessary explanations for a phenomenon. His theory was that when you have multiple possibilities, the simplest is almost always the correct one. So, what's your simple theory, Rhyme? Staring at the brochure, the criminalist answered Sachs, I think you and Pulaski should go pay a visit to SSD tomorrow morning. And do what? He gave a shrug. Ask if anybody who works there is the killer. Chapter 16 Ah, home at last. I closed the door and lock out the world. I breathe deeply, and setting my backpack on the couch, go into the spotless kitchen and drink some pure water. No stimulants for me at the moment. That edgy thing again. The townhouse is a nice one. Pre-war, huge. It would have to be when you live the way I do, given my collections. Not easy to find the perfect place. It took me some time, but here I am, largely unnoticed. It's obscenely easy to be virtually anonymous in New York. What a marvelous city. Here, the default mode of existence is life off the grid. Here, you have to fight to be noticed. Many sixteens do that, of course, but then the world's always had more than its share of fools. Still, listen, you need to keep up appearances. The front rooms of my townhouse are simple and tastefully decorated. Thank you, Scandinavia. I don't socialize here much, but you need a facade to seem normal. You have to function in the real world. If you don't, sixteens begin to wonder if there's something going on, if you're someone other than you seem. And it's a short step from that to someone coming around, poking into your closet, and taking everything away from you. Everything you've worked so hard for. Everything. And that's the worst of the worst. So you make sure your closet is secret. You make sure your treasures are hidden behind curtained or blocked windows while you maintain your other life in full view, the sunlit side of the moon. To stay off the grid, it's best to have a second living space. You do what I've done. Keep this Danish modern patina of normalcy clean and ordered, even if it grates on your nerves like steel on slate to be there. You have a normal house, because that's what everybody has. And you maintain a pleasant connection with associates and friends. 
because that's what everyone does. And you date occasionally and entice her to spend the night, and you go through the motions, because that too is what everyone does. No matter that she doesn't get you as hard as when you've smooth-talked your way into a girl's bedroom, smiling, aren't we soulmates, look at everything we have in common, with a tape recorder and a knife in your jacket pocket. Now I pull the shades in the bay windows and head to the back of the living room. Wow, this is like a really neat place. It looks bigger from the outside. Yeah, funny how that happens. Hey, you've got a door in your living room. What's through here? Oh, that, just storage, a closet, nothing to see. Want some wine? Well, what's through there, Debbie, Sandra, Susan, Brenda, is where I'm headed right now. My real home, my closet, I call it. It's like a keep, that last defensible spot of a medieval castle, the sanctuary in the center. When all else failed, the king and his family would retreat to the keep. I enter mine through that magic doorway. It actually is a closet, a walk-in, and inside you'll see hanging clothes and shoeboxes, but push them aside and you'll find a second door. It opens onto the rest of the house, which is far, far bigger than the facade's horrifying blonde Swedish minimalism. My closet. I enter it now and lock the doors behind me and turn on the light. Trying to relax, but after today, after the disaster, I'm having trouble shaking the edgy. This isn't good. This isn't good. This... I drop into my desk chair and boot up the computer as I stare at the Prescott painting in front of me, courtesy of Alice 3895. What a touch he had. The eyes of the family members are fascinating. Prescott managed to give each one a different gaze. It's clear they're all related. The expressions are similar in that way. Yet they're also different as if each is imagining a different aspect of life as a family. Happy, troubled, angry, mystified, controlling, controlled. It's what a family is all about, I suppose. I open the backpack and take out the treasures I've acquired today. A tin canister, a pencil set, an old cheese grater. Why would somebody throw these away? I also unload some practical items I'll use in the next few weeks, some pre-approved credit mailers that people carelessly discarded, credit card vouchers, phone bills. Fools, I was saying. There's another item from my collection, of course, but I'll get to the tape recorder later. It's not as great a find as it could be, since Myra 9834's throaty screams while I detached the fingernail had to be muted by duct tape. I was worried about passers-by. Still, everything in a collection can't be a crown jewel. You need the mundane to make the special soar. I then wander through my closet, depositing the treasures in the appropriate places. It looks bigger from the outside. As of today, I have 7,403 newspapers, 3,234 magazines, National Geographic's being the cornerstone, of course, 4,235 matchbooks, and foregoing the numbers, coat hangers, kitchen utensils, lunch boxes, soda pop bottles, empty cereal boxes, scissors, shaving gear, shoehorns and trees, buttons, cufflinks boxes, combs, wristwatches, clothes, tools useful and tools long outmoded, phonograph records in colors, records in black, bottles, toys, jam jars, candles and holders, candy dishes, weapons, 
It goes on and on and on. The closet consists of, what else? Sixteen galleries, like a museum's, ranging from those holding cheerful toys, though that howdy-doody is pretty damn scary, to rooms of some things that I treasure, but most people would find, oh, unpleasant. Hair and nail clippings and some shriveled mementos from various transactions. Like this afternoon's. I deposit Myra 9834's fingernail in a prominent spot. And while this would normally give me enough pleasure to make me hard again, now the moment is dark and spoiled. I hate them so much. With quivering hands, I close the cigar box, taking no pleasure from my treasures at the moment. Hate, hate, hate. Back at the computer, I'm reflecting, maybe there's no threat. Maybe it's just an odd set of coincidences that led them to De Leon 6832's house. But I can't take any chances. The problem, the risk that my treasures will be taken from me, which is consuming me now. The solution, to do what I started in Brooklyn, to fight back, to eliminate any threats. What most sixteens, including my pursuers, don't understand and what puts them at a pathetic disadvantage is this. I believe in the immutable truth that there is absolutely nothing morally wrong with taking a life, because I know that there is eternal existence completely independent of these bags of skin and organ we cart around temporarily. I have proof. Just look at the trove of data about your life, built up from the moment you're born. It's all permanent, stored in a thousand places, copied, backed up, invisible, and indestructible. After the body goes, as all bodies must, the data survive forever. And if that's not the definition of an immortal soul, I don't know what is. Chapter 17 The bedroom was quiet. Rhyme had sent Tom home to spend Sunday night with Peter Hoddens, the caregiver's longtime partner. Rhyme gave the aide a lot of crap. He couldn't help that, and sometimes he felt bad about it, but he tried to compensate, and when Amelia Sachs was staying with him, as tonight, he shooed Tom off. The young man needed more of a life outside the townhouse here, taking care of a feisty old crip. Rhyme heard tinkering in the bathroom, the sounds of a woman getting ready for bed. Clinks of glass and snaps of plastic lids, aerosol hisses, water running, fragrances escaping on humid bathroom air. He liked moments like these. It reminded him of his life in the before. Which in turn brought to mind the pictures downstairs in the laboratory. Beside the one of Lincoln in his tracksuit was another in black and white. It showed two men wearing suits on their lanky frames, in their twenties, standing side by side. Their arms hung straight as if they were wondering whether to embrace. Rhyme's father and uncle. He thought often of Uncle Henry. His father, not so much. This had been true throughout his life. Oh, there was nothing objectionable about Teddy Rhyme. The younger of the two siblings was simply retiring, often shy. He loved his nine-to-five job crunching numbers in various labs, loved to read, which he did every evening while lounging in a thick, well-worn armchair while his wife, Anne, sewed or watched TV. Teddy favored history, especially the American Civil War, an interest that Rhyme supposed was the source of his own given name. The boy and his father coexisted pleasantly, though Rhyme recalled many awkward silences present when father and son were alone. 
What troubles also engages. What challenges you makes you feel alive. And Teddy never troubled or challenged. Uncle Henry did, though. In spades. You couldn't be in the same room with him for more than a few minutes without his attention turning to you like a searchlight. Then came the jokes, the trivia, recent family news, and always the questions. Some asked because he was genuinely curious to learn. Most, though, asked as a call to debate with you. Oh, how Henry Rhyme loved intellectual jousting. You might cringe, you might blush, you might grow furious, but you'd also burn with pride at one of the rare compliments he offered because you knew you'd earned it. No false praise or unwarranted encouragement ever slipped from Uncle Henry's lips. You're close. Think harder. You've got it in you. Einstein had done all his important work when he was just a little older than you. If you got it right, you were blessed with a raised eyebrow of approval, tantamount to winning the Westinghouse Science Fair Prize. But all too often your arguments were fallacious, your premises straw, your criticisms emotional, your facts skewed. At issue, though, wasn't his victory over you. His only goal was arriving at the truth and making sure you understood the root. Once he diced your argument to fine chop and made sure you saw why, the matter was over. So you understand where you went wrong? You calculated the temperature with an incorrect set of assumptions. Exactly. Now, let's make some calls. Get some people together and go see the White Sox on Saturday. I need a ballpark hot dog, and we sure as hell won't be able to buy one at Comiskey Park in October. Lincoln had enjoyed the intellectual sparring, often driving all the way to Hyde Park to sit in on his uncle's seminars or informal discussion groups at the university. In fact, he had gone more frequently than Arthur, who was usually busy with other activities. If his uncle were still alive, he'd undoubtedly stroll into Rhyme's room now without a glance at his motionless body, point at the gas chromatograph, and blurt, Why are you still running that piece of crap? Then, settling down across from the evidence whiteboards, he'd start questioning Rhyme about his handling of the 522 case. Yes, but is it logical for this individual to behave in this manner? State your givens once more for me. He thought back to the night he'd recalled earlier, the Christmas Eve of his senior year in high school at his uncle's house in Evanston. Present were Henry and Paula and their children, Robert, Arthur, and Marie, Teddy and Anne with Lincoln, some aunts and uncles, other cousins, a neighbor or two. Lincoln and Arthur had spent much of the evening playing pool downstairs and talking about plans for the next fall and college. Lincoln's heart was set on MIT. Arthur, too, planned to go there. They were both confident of admission, and that night were debating rooming together in a dorm or finding an off-campus apartment. Male camaraderie versus a babe lair. The family then assembled at the massive table in his uncle's dining room. Lake Michigan churning nearby, the wind hissing through bare, gray branches in the backyard. Henry presided over the table the way he presided over his class, in charge and aware, a faint smile below quick eyes, taking in all the conversations around him. He'd tell jokes and anecdotes and ask about his guests' lives. He was interested, curious, and sometimes manipulative. So, Marie, now that we're all here, tell us about that fellowship at Georgetown. I think we agreed it'd be excellent for you, and Jerry can come visit on weekends in that fancy new car of his. By the way, when's the deadline for the application? Coming up, I seem to recall. And his wispy-haired daughter avoided his eyes and said what with Christmas and final exams she hadn't quite finished the paperwork. But she would. 
Definitely. Henry's mission, of course, was to get his daughter to commit in front of witnesses. No matter that she'd be separated from her fiancé for another six months. Rhyme had always believed that his uncle would have made an excellent trial lawyer or politician. After the remnants of the turkey and mincemeat pie were cleared away and the Grand Marnier, coffee and tea had appeared, Henry ushered everyone into the living room, dominated by a massive tree, busy fireplace flames, and a stern painting of Lincoln's grandfather, a triple doctorate and a professor at Harvard. It was time for the competition. Henry would throw out a science question, and the first to answer it would win a point. The top three players would receive prizes picked by Henry and meticulously wrapped by Paula. Tensions were palpable. They always were when Henry was in charge, and people competed seriously. Lincoln's father could be counted on to nail more than a few chemistry questions. If the topic involved numbers, his mother, a part-time math teacher, answered some before Henry had even finished asking. The frontrunners throughout the contest, though, were the cousins, Robert, Marie, Lincoln, and Arthur, and Marie's fiancé. Toward the end, nearly 8 p.m., the contestants were literally on the edge of their chairs. The rankings changed with every question. Palms were sweaty. With only minutes remaining on timekeeper Paula's clock, Lincoln answered three questions in a row and nosed ahead for the first-place win. Marie was second, Arthur third. Amid the clapping, Lincoln took a theatrical bow and accepted the top prize from his uncle. He still remembered his surprise as he unwrapped the dark green paper, a clear plastic box containing a one-inch cube of concrete. It wasn't a joke prize, though. What Lincoln held was a piece of stag field at the University of Chicago, where the first atomic chain reaction had occurred, under the direction of his cousin's namesake, Arthur Compton, and Enrico Fermi. Henry had apparently acquired one of the pieces when the stadium was torn down in the 1950s. Lincoln had been very touched by the historic prize and suddenly glad he'd played seriously. He still had the rock somewhere, tucked away in a cardboard box in the basement. But Lincoln had no time to admire his award, because that night he had a late date with Adriana. Like his family, unexpectedly thrust into his thoughts today, the beautiful red-haired gymnast had figured in his memories, too. Adriana Valeska, echoing her second-generation Gdansk roots, worked in the college counselor's office in Lincoln's high school. Early in his senior year, delivering some applications to her, he'd spotted Stranger in a Strange Land on her desk, the Heinlein novel well-thumbed. They'd spent the next hour discussing the book, agreeing often, arguing some, with the result that Lincoln realized he'd missed his chemistry class. No matter, priorities were priorities. She was tall, lean, had invisible braces and an appealing figure under her fuzzy sweaters and flared jeans. Her smile ranged from ebullient to seductive. They were soon dating, the first foray into serious romance for both of them. They'd attend each other's sports meets, go to the thorn rooms at the Art Institute, the jazz clubs in Old Town, and occasionally visit the back seat of her Chevy Monza which was hardly any backseat at all, and therefore just the ticket. Adriana lived a short run from his house by Lincoln's track and field standards, but that would never do, can't show up sweaty, so he'd borrow the family car when he could and head over to see her. They'd spend hours talking. As with Uncle Henry, he and Adie engaged. Obstacles existed, yes. 
he was leaving next year for college in Boston. She for San Diego to study biology and work in the zoo, but those were mere complications, and Lincoln Rhyme, then as now, would not accept complications as excuses. Afterward, after the accident, and after he and Blaine divorced, Rhyme often wondered what would have happened if he and Adriana had stayed together and pursued what they'd started. That Christmas Eve night, in fact, he'd come very close to proposing. He'd considered offering her not a ring, but, as he'd cleverly rehearsed, a different kind of rock, his uncle's prize from the science trivia contest. But he'd balked, thanks to the weather. As they'd sat clutching each other on a bench, the snow had begun to tumble suicidally from the silent Midwest sky, and in minutes their hair and coats were covered with a damp white blanket. She just made it back to her house and Lincoln to his before the roads were blocked. He lay in bed that night, the plastic box containing the concrete beside him, and practiced a proposal speech, which was never delivered. Events intruded in their lives, sending them on different paths, seemingly minute events, though small in the way of invisible atoms tricked to fission in a chilly sports stadium, changing the world forever. Everything would have been different. Rhyme now caught a glimpse of Sax brushing her long red hair. He watched her for some moments, glad she'd be staying tonight, more pleased than usual. Rhyme and Sax weren't inseparable. They were staunchly independent people, preferring often to spend time apart, but tonight he wanted her here, enjoying the presence of her body next to his, the sensation in those few places he was able to feel, all the more intense for its rarity. His love for her was one of the motivators for his exercise regimen, working on a computerized treadmill and electrologic bike. If medical science crept past that finishing line, allowing him to walk again, his muscles were going to be ready. He was also considering a new operation that might improve his condition until that day arrived. Experimental and controversial, it was known as peripheral nerve rerouting, a technique that had been talked about and occasionally tried for years without many positive results. But recently, foreign doctors had been performing the operation with some success, despite the reservation of the American medical community. The procedure involved surgically connecting nerves above the site of the injury to nerves below it, a detour around a washed-out bridge, in effect. The successes were mostly in bodies less severely damaged than rhymes, but the results were remarkable. Return of bladder control, movement of limbs, even walking. The latter would not be the result in Rhymes' case, but discussions with a Japanese doctor who'd pioneered the procedure, and with a colleague at an Ivy League university teaching hospital, gave some hope of improvement. Possibly sensation and movement in his arms, hands, and bladder. Sex, too. Paralyzed men, even quads, are perfectly capable of having sex. If the stimulus is mental, seeing a man or woman who appeals to us, then no, the message doesn't make it past the site of the damaged spinal cord. But the body is a brilliant mechanism, and there's a magic loop of nerve that operates on its own, below the injury. A little local stimulus, and even the most severely disabled man can often make love. The bathroom light clicked out and he watched her silhouette join him and climb into what she'd announced long ago was the most comfortable bed in the world. I, he began, and his voice was immediately muffled by her mouth as she kissed him hard. What did you say? she whispered. 
moving her lips along his chin, then to his neck. He'd forgotten. I forgot. He gripped her ear with his lips and was then aware of the blankets being pulled down. This took some effort on her part. Tom made up the bed like a soldier afraid of his drill sergeant, but soon he could see that the blankets were bunched up at the foot. Sax's t-shirt had joined them. She kissed him again. He kissed her back hard, which is when her phone rang. Uh-uh, she whispered. I didn't hear that. After four rings, blessed voicemail took over, but a moment later it rang again. Could be your mother, Rhyme pointed out. Rosax had been undergoing some treatments for a cardiac problem. The prognosis was good, but she'd had some recent setbacks. Sachs grunted and flipped it open, bathing both of their bodies in a blue light. Looking at caller ID, she said, Pam, I better take it. Of course. Hey there, what's up? As the one-sided conversation continued, Rhyme deduced that something was wrong. Okay, sure, but I'm at Lincoln's. You want to come over here? She glanced at Rhyme, who was nodding agreement. Okay, honey, we'll be awake, sure. She snapped the phone shut. When is it? I don't know. She wouldn't say. She just said Dan and Enid had two emergency placements tonight, so all the older kids had to room together. She had to get out, and she doesn't want to be at my place alone. It's fine with me, you know that. Sax lay back down, and her mouth explored energetically. She whispered, I did the math. She's got to pack a bag, get her car out of the garage. It'll take her a good 45 minutes to be here. We've got a little time. She leaned forward and kissed him again. Just as the doorbell rang jarringly and the intercom clattered. Mr. Rhyme, Amelia, hi, it's Pam. Can you buzz me in? Rhyme laughed. Or she might have called from the front steps. They sat in one of the upstairs bedrooms, Pam and Sachs. The room was the girl's for whenever she wished to stay. A stuffed animal or two sat neglected on the shelf. When your mother and stepfather are running from the FBI, toys don't figure much in your childhood. But she had several hundred books and CDs. Thanks to Tom, there always were plenty of clean sweats and T-shirts and socks. A serious satellite radio set and a disc player. Her running shoes, too. Pam loved to speed along the 1.6-mile path surrounding the Central Park Reservoir. She ran from love of running, and she ran from hungry need. The girl now sat on the bed, carefully painting gold polish on her toenails, cotton balls separating the canvases. Her mother had forbidden this, as well as makeup. Out of respect for Christ, however that was supposed to work, and once sprung from the far-right underground, she took up small, comforting additions to her persona, like this, some ruddy hair tint and the three ear piercings. Sax was relieved she didn't go overboard. If anybody had a reason to slingshot herself into the weird, it was Pamela Willoughby. Sachs was lounging in a chair, feet up, her own toenails bare. A breeze carried into the small room the complicated mix of spring scents from Central Park. Mulch, earth, dew-damp foliage, vehicle exhaust. She sipped her hot chocolate. Ouch! Blow on it first. Pam whistled into her cup and tasted it. It's good, yeah, hot. She returned to her nails. In contrast to her visage earlier in the day, the girl's face was troubled. You know what those are called? 
Sax was pointing. Feet, toes? No, the bottoms. Sure, the bottoms of feet and the bottoms of toes. They laughed. Plantars. And they have prints, too, just like fingerprints. Lincoln convicted somebody once because the perp kicked somebody unconscious with his bare foot. But he missed once and whacked the door, left a print on it. That's cool. He should write another book. I'm after him, too, Sax said. So, what's up? Stuart, go on. Maybe I shouldn't have come. It's stupid. Come on, I'm a cop, remember? I'll sweat it out of you. Just, Emily called, and it was weird her calling on Sunday, like she never does, and I'm thinking, okay, something's going on. And it's like she really doesn't want to say anything, but then she does, and she said she saw Stuart today with somebody else, this girl from school, after the soccer game, only he told me he was going right home. Well, what are the facts? Were they just talking? Nothing wrong with that. She said she wasn't sure, but it, you know, kind of looked like he was hugging her. And then, when he saw somebody looking at him, he kind of walked away real fast with her, like he was trying to hide. The toenail project came to a stop, halfway done. I really, really like him. It'd suck if he didn't want to see me anymore. Sax and Pam had been to a counselor together, and with Pam's agreement, Sax had spoken to the woman alone. Pam would be undergoing a lengthy period of post-traumatic stress, not only from her lengthy captivity with a sociopath parent, but from a particular episode in which her stepfather had nearly sacrificed her life while trying to murder police officers. Incidents like this one with Stuart Everett, small to most people, were amplified in the girl's mind and could have devastating effects. Sachs had been told not to add to her fears, but not to downplay them either. To look at each one carefully and try to analyze it. Have you guys talked about seeing other people? He said, well, a month ago he said he wasn't. I'm not either. I told him that. Any other intelligence? Sachs asked. Intelligence? I mean, have any of your other friends said anything? No. Do you know any of his friends? Kind of, but not like I could ask them anything about it. That'd be way uncool. Sax smiled. So spies aren't going to work. Well, what you should do is just ask him point blank. You think? I think. What if he says he is seeing her? Then you should be thankful he's honest with you. That's a good sign. And then you convince him to dump the bimbo. They laughed. What you do is say that you just want to date one person. The startup mother and Sax added quickly, We're not talking about getting married, not moving in, just dating. Pam nodded quickly. Oh, absolutely. Relieved, Sax continued, And he's the one you want to see. But you expect the same thing from him. You have something important, you relate to each other, you can talk, you've got a connection, and you don't see that very much. Like you and Mr. Rhyme? Yeah, like that. But if he doesn't want it, then okay. No, it's not, Pam frowned. No, I'm just telling you what you say, but then tell him you're going to be dating other people, too. He can't have it both ways. I guess, but what if he says fine? Her face was dark at the thought. A laugh. Sack shook her head. Yep, it's a bummer when they call your bluff, but I don't think he will. All right, I'm going to see him tomorrow after class. I'll talk to him. Call me. Let me know. Sax rose, lifted away the polish, and capped it. 
Get some sleep. It's late. But my nails, I'm not finished. Don't wear open-toed. Amelia? She paused at the doorway. Are you and Mr. Rhyme going to get married? Sax smiled and closed the door. Three. The Fortune Teller. Monday, May 23rd. With uncanny accuracy, computers predict behavior by sifting through mountains of data about customers collected by businesses. Called predictive analytics, this automated crystal ball gazing has become a $2.3 billion industry in the United States and is on track to reach $3 billion by 2008. Chicago Tribune. Chapter 18 They're pretty big. Amelia Sachs sat in Strategic Systems Data Corps' sky-high lobby and reflected that the shoe company president's description of SSD's data mining operation was, well, pretty understated. The Midtown building was thirty stories high, a gray spiky monolith, the sides smooth granite flashing with mica. The windows were narrow slits, which was surprising given the stunning views of the city from this location and elevation. She was familiar with the building, dubbed the Gray Rock, but had never known who owned it. She and Ron Pulaski, no longer in play clothes but wearing a Navy suit and Navy uniform, respectively, sat facing a massive wall on which were printed the locations of the SSD offices around the world, among them London, Buenos Aires, Mumbai, Singapore, Beijing, Dubai, Sydney, and Tokyo. Pretty big. Above the list of satellite offices was the company logo, the window in the watchtower. Her gut twisted slightly as she recalled the windows in the abandoned building across the street from Robert Jorgensen's residence hotel. She recalled Lincoln Rhymes' words about the incident with the federal agent in Brooklyn. He knew exactly where you were, which means he was watching. Be careful, Sachs. Looking around the lobby, she saw a half-dozen business people waiting here, many of them uneasy, it seemed, and she recalled the shoe company president and his concern about losing SSD's services. She then saw, almost en masse, their heads swivel looking past the receptionist. They were watching a short man, youthful, enter the lobby and walk directly toward Sachs and Pulaski over the black-and-white rugs. His posture was perfect and his stride long. The sandy-haired man nodded and smiled, offering a fast greeting, by name, to nearly everybody here. A presidential candidate. That was Sachs's first impression. But he didn't stop until he came to the officers. Good morning. I'm Andrew Sterling. Detective Sachs. This is Officer Pulaski. Sterling was shorter than Sachs by several inches, but he seemed quite fit and had broad shoulders. His immaculate white shirt featured a starched collar and cuffs. His arms seemed muscular. The jacket was tight-fitting. No jewelry. Crinkles radiated from the corners of his green eyes when that easy smile crossed his face. Let's go to my office. The head of such a big company yet he'd come to them rather than having an underling escort them to his throne room. Sterling walked easily down the wide, quiet halls. He greeted every employee, sometimes asking questions about their weekends. They ate up his smiles at reports of an enjoyable weekend and his frowns at word of ill relatives or canceled games. There were dozens of them, and he made a personal comment to each. Hello, Tony, he said to a janitor, who was emptying the contents of shredded documents into a large plastic bag. Did you see the game? 
No, Andrew, I missed it. Had too much to do. Maybe we should start three-day weekends, Sterling joked. I'd vote for that, Andrew. And they continued down the hall. Sachs didn't think she knew as many in the NYPD as Sterling said hello to in their five-minute walk. The decor of the company was minimal, some small, tasteful photographs and sketches, none in color, overwhelmed by the spotless white walls. The furniture, also black or white, was simple, expensive Ikea. It was a statement of some kind, she guessed, but she found it bleak. As they walked, she ran through what she'd learned last night, after saying goodnight to Pam. The man's bio, patched together from the web, was sparse. He was an intensely reclusive man, a Howard Hughes, not a Bill Gates. His early life was a mystery. She'd found no references at all to his childhood or his parents. A few sketchy pieces in the press had put him on the radar at age 17, when he'd had his first jobs, mostly in sales, working door-to-door -door and telemarketing, moving up to bigger, more expensive products. Finally, computers. For a kid with a seven-eighths of a bachelor's degree from a night school, Sterling told the press, he found himself a successful salesman. He'd gone back to college, finishing the last one-eighth of the degree and completing a master's in computer science and engineering in short order. The stories were all very Horatio Alger and included only details that boosted his savvy and status as a businessman. Then, in his twenties, had come the Great Awakening, he said, sounding like a Chinese communist dictator. Sterling was selling a lot of computers, but not enough to satisfy him. Why wasn't he more successful? He wasn't lazy, he wasn't stupid. Then he realized the problem. He was inefficient. And so were a lot of other salesmen. So Sterling learned computer programming and spent weeks of 18-hour days in a dark room writing software. He hocked everything and started a company, one based on a concept that was either foolish or brilliant. Its most valuable asset wouldn't be owned by his company, but by millions of other people, much of it free for the taking. Information about themselves. Sterling began compiling a database that included potential customers in a number of service and manufacturing markets the demographics of the area in which they were located, their income, marital status, the good or bad news about their financial and legal and tax situations, and as much other information, personal and professional, as he could buy, steal, or otherwise find. If there's a fact out there, I want it, he was quoted as saying. The software he wrote, the early version of the Watchtower database management system, was revolutionary at the time, an exponential leap over the famed SQL, pronounced SQL, Sachs had learned, program. In minutes, Watchtower would decide which customers would be worthwhile to call on and how to seduce them, and which weren't worth the effort, but whose names might be sold to other companies for their own pitches. The company grew like a monster in a science fiction film. Sterling changed the name to SSD, moved it to Manhattan, and began to collect smaller companies in the information business to add to his empire. Though unpopular with privacy rights organizations, there'd never been a hint of a scandal at SSD, a la Enron. Employees had to earn their salaries. No one received obscenely high Wall Street bonuses. But if the company profited, so did they. SSD offered tuition and home purchasing assistance, internships for children, and parents were given a year of maternity or paternity leave. The company was known for the familiar way it treated its workers, and Sterling encouraged hiring spouses, parents, and children. 
Every month he sponsored motivational and team-building retreats. The CEO was secretive about his personal life, though Sachs learned that he didn't smoke or drink and that no one had ever heard him utter an obscenity. He lived modestly, took a surprisingly small salary, and kept his wealth in SSD stock. He shunned the New York social scene. No fast cars, no private jets. Despite his respect for the family unit among SSD employees, Sterling was twice divorced and unmarried at the moment. There were conflicting reports about children he'd fathered in his youth. He had several residences, but he kept their whereabouts out of the public record. Perhaps because he knew the power of data, Andrew Sterling appreciated its dangers, too. Sterling, Sachs, and Pulaski now came to the end of a long corridor and entered an exterior office, where two assistants had their desks, both of which were filled with perfectly ordered stacks of papers, file folders, printouts. Only one assistant was in at the moment, a young man, handsome, in a conservative suit. His nameplate read, Martin Coyle. His area was the most ordered. Even the many books behind him were arranged in descending order of size, Sachs was amused to see. Andrew? He nodded a greeting to his boss, ignoring the officers as soon as he noted that they hadn't been introduced. Your phone messages are on your computer. Thank you. Sterling glanced at the other desk. Jeremy's going to look over the restaurant for the press junket. He did that this morning. He's running some papers over to the law firm about that other matter. Sachs marveled that Sterling had two personal assistants, apparently one for the inside work, the other handling out-of-the-office matters. At the NYPD, detectives shared, if they had help at all. They continued on to Sterling's own office, which wasn't much bigger than any other she'd seen in the company, and its walls were free of decoration. Despite the SSD logo of the voyeuristic window in the watchtower, Andrew Sterling's were curtained, cutting off what would be a magnificent view of the city. A ripple of claustrophobia coursed through her. Sterling sat in a simple wooden chair, not a leather swivel throne. He gestured them into similar ones, though padded. Behind him were low shelves filled with books, but curiously, they were stacked with spines facing up, not outward. Visitors to his office couldn't see his choice of reading matter without walking past the man and looking down or pulling out a volume. The CEO nodded at a pitcher and a half-dozen inverted glasses. That's water, but if you like some coffee or tea, I can have some fetched. Fetched? She didn't think she'd ever heard anyone actually use the word. No, thank you. Pulaski shook his head. Excuse me, just one moment. Sterling picked up his phone, dialed. Andy, you called? Sachs deduced from the tone that it was someone close to him, though it was clearly a business call about a problem of some sort. Yet Sterling spoke emotionlessly. Ah, uh, well, you'll have to, I think. We need those numbers. You know, they're not sitting on their hands. They'll make a move any day now. Good. He hung up and noticed Sachs watching him closely. My son works for the company. A nod at a photo on his desk, showing Sterling with a handsome, thin young man who resembled the CEO. Both were wearing SSD T-shirts at some employee outing, maybe one of the inspirational retreats. They were next to each other, but there was no physical contact between them. Neither was smiling. So one question about his personal life had been answered. Now, 
he said, turning his green eyes on Sachs. What's this all about? You mentioned some crime. Sachs explained. There have been several murders in the past few months in the city. We think that someone might have used information in your computers to get close to the victims, kill them, and then use that and other information to frame innocent people for the crimes. The man who knows everything. Information? His concerns seemed genuine. He was perplexed, too, though. I'm not sure how that could happen, but tell me more. Well, the killer knew exactly what personal products the victims used, and he planted traces of them as evidence at an innocent person's residence to connect them to the killing. From time to time, the eyebrows above Sterling's emerald irises narrowed. He seemed genuinely troubled as she gave him the details about the theft of the painting and coins and the two sexual assaults. That's terrible. Troubled by the news, he glanced away from her. Rapes? Sachs nodded grimly and then explained how SSD seemed to be the only company in the area that had access to all the information the killer had used. He rubbed his face, nodding slowly. I can see why you're concerned, but wouldn't it be easier for this killer just to follow the people he victimized and find out what they bought, or even hack into their computers, break into their mailboxes, their homes, jot down their license plate numbers from the street? But, see, that's the problem. He could, but he'd have to do all of those things to get the information he needed. There have been four crimes at a minimum. We think there could probably be more. And that means up-to-date information on the four victims and four men he's setting up. The most efficient way to get that information would be to go through a data miner. Sterling gave a smile, a delicate wince. Sachs frowned and cocked her head. He said, Nothing wrong with that term data miner. The press has latched onto it and you see it everywhere. Twenty million search engine hits. But I prefer to call SSD a knowledge service provider, a KSP, like an internet service provider. Sachs had a strange sensation. He seemed almost hurt by what she'd said. She wanted to tell him she wouldn't do it again. Sterling smoothed a stack of papers on his organized desktop. At first she thought they were blank, but then she noticed they were all turned face down. Well, believe me, if anyone at SSD is involved, I want to find out as much as you do. This could look very bad for us. Knowledge service providers haven't been doing very well in the press or in Congress lately. First of all, Sack said, the killer would have bought most of the items with cash, we're pretty sure. Sterling nodded. He wouldn't want to leave any trace of himself. Right, but the shoes he bought mail order or online. Would you have a list of people who bought these shoes in these sizes in the New York area? She handed him a list of the Altons, the Bass, and the Sure Tracks. The same man would have bought all of them. What time period? Three months? Sterling made a phone call. He had a brief conversation, and no more than sixty seconds later, he was looking at his computer screen. He swiveled it so Sachs could see, though she wasn't sure what she was looking at. Strings of product information and codes. The CEO shook his head. Roughly eight hundred Altons sold, twelve hundred Bass, two hundred Sure Tracks, but no one person bought all three, or even two pairs. Rhyme had suspected that the killer, if he used information from SSD, would cover his tracks, but they'd hoped this lead would pay off. Staring at the numbers, she wondered if the killer had used the identity theft techniques he'd perfected on Robert Jorgensen to order the shoes. 
Sorry. She nodded. Sterling uncapped a battered silver pen and pulled a notepad toward him. In precise script, he wrote several notes Sachs couldn't read, stared at it, nodded to himself. You're thinking, I'd imagine, that the problem is an intruder, an employee, one of our customers, or a hacker, right? Ron Pulaski glanced at Sachs and said, Exactly. All right, let's get to the bottom of it. He checked his Seiko watch. I want some other people in here. It may take a few minutes. We have our spirit circles every Monday around this time. Spirit circles? Pulaski asked. Inspirational team meetings by the group leaders. They should be finished soon. We started eight on the dot, but some go a little longer than others, depending on the leader. He said, Command, intercom, Martin. Sachs laughed to herself. He was using the same sort of voice recognition system that Lincoln Rhyme had. Yes, Andrew. The voice came from a tiny box on the desk. I want Tom, Security Tom, and Sam. Are they in spirit circles? No, Andrew, but Sam's probably going to be in Washington all week. He won't be back till Friday. Mark, his assistant's in. Him, then. Yes, sir. Command, intercom, disconnect. To Sachs, he said, Should just be a moment. She imagined that when Andrew Sterling summoned you, you materialized pretty quickly. He jotted a few more notes. As he did, she glanced at the company logo on the wall. When he was through writing, she said, I'm curious about that, the tower and the window. What's the significance of it? On one level, it just means observing data, but there's a second meaning. He smiled, pleased to be explaining this. Do you know the concept of the broken window in social philosophy? No. I learned about it years ago and never forgot it. The thrust is that in order to improve society, you should concentrate on the small things. If you control those or fix them, then the bigger changes will follow. Take housing projects with a high crime problem. You can sink millions into increased police patrols and security cameras, but if the projects still look dilapidated and dangerous, they'll stay dilapidated and dangerous. Instead of millions of dollars, put thousands into fixing the windows, painting, cleaning the halls. It may seem cosmetic, but people will notice. They'll take pride in where they live. They'll start to report people who are threats and who don't look after their property. As I'm sure you know, that was the thrust of crime prevention in New York in the 90s, and it worked. Andrew, came Martin's voice from the intercom. Tom and Mark are here. Sterling ordered, send them in. He set the paper he'd been jotting notes on directly in front of him. He gave Sachs a grim smile. Let's see if anybody's been peeking through our window. Chapter 19 The doorbell rang and Tom ushered in a man in his early thirties, disheveled brown hair, jeans, a weird Al Yankovic t-shirt under a shabby brown sports coat. You couldn't be in the forensics game nowadays without being computer literate, but both Rhyme and Cooper recognized their limitations. When it was clear that there were digital implications of the 522 case, Salido had requested some help from the NYPD Computer Crimes Unit, an elite group of 32 detectives and support staff. Rodney Sarnik strode into the room, glanced at the nearest monitor, and said, Hey! as if he were speaking to the hardware. Similarly, when he glanced toward Rhyme, he expressed no interest in his physical condition whatsoever, only in the wireless environmental control unit attached to the armrest. He seemed impressed. 
You day off? Salito asked, glancing at the slim young man's outfit, his voice making it clear he didn't approve. Rhyme knew the detective was old school. Police officers should dress appropriately. Day off, Sarnik replied, missing the dig. No, why would I have a day off? Just wondering. Heh. <laughs> so, now, what's the story? We need a trap. Lincoln Rhyme's theory about strolling into SSD and just plain asking about a killer wasn't as naive as it seemed. When he'd seen on the company website that SSD's Public Sure Division supported police departments, his hunch was that NYPD was a customer. If that was the case, then the killer might have access to the department files. A fast call revealed that, yes, the department was a client. PublicSure Software and SSD consultants provided data management services for the city, including consolidation of case information, reports, and records. If a patrolman on the street needed a warrant check, or a detective new to a homicide needed the case's history, PublicSure helped get the information to his desk or squad car computer, or even his PDA or cell phone, in minutes. By sending Sachs and Pulaski to the company and asking who might have accessed the data files about the victims and fall guys, 522 could learn they were onto him and try to get into the NYPD system through public sure to look at the reports. If he did, they might be able to trace who had accessed the files. Rhyme explained the situation to Zarnak, who nodded knowingly as if he set up traps like this every day. He was taken aback, though, when he learned what company the killer might have a connection to. SSD, the biggest data miner in the world? They got the scoop on all of God's children. Is that a problem? His carefree geek image faltered, and he answered softly, I hope not. And he set to work with their trap, explaining what he was doing. He stripped from the files any details about the case they didn't want 522 to know, and manually transferred those sensitive files to a computer that had no Internet access. He then put an alarmed visual trace route program in front of the Myra Weinberg sexual assault homicide file on the NYPD server, and added subfiles to tempt the killer, like suspect's whereabouts, forensic analysis, and witnesses, all of which contained only general notes about crime scene procedures. If anyone accessed it, either hacking in or through authorized channels, a notice of the person's ISP and physical location would be instantly sent to Sarnak. They could tell immediately if the one checking out the file was a cop with a legitimate inquiry or was somebody on the outside. If so, Zarnak would notify Reimer Salido, who would have the ESU team head to the location immediately. Zarnak also included a large amount of material and background, such as public information on SSD, all of it encrypted, to make sure that the killer spent plenty of time in the system deciphering the data and giving them a better chance to find him. How long will it take? Fifteen, twenty minutes. Good. And when you've got that finished, I also want to see if somebody could have hacked in from the outside. Cracked SSD? Uh-huh. Heh, <laughs> they'll have firewalls on their firewalls on their firewalls. Still, we need to know. But if one of the people is the killer, I assume you don't want me to call the company up and coordinate with them. Right. Sarnak's face clouded. I'll just try to break in, I guess. You can do that legally? Yes and no. I'll only test the walls. It's not a crime if I don't actually get into their system and bring it crashing down in a really embarrassing media event that lands us all in jail. He added ominously, or worse. 
Okay, but I want the trap first, ASAP. Rhyme glanced at the clock. Sachs and Pulaski were already spreading the word about the case down at the Gray Rock. Sarnak pulled a heavy portable computer out of his satchel and set it on a table nearby. Any chance I could get a... Oh, thanks. Tom was bringing around a coffee pot and cups. Just what I was going to ask for. Extra sugar, no milk. You can't take the geek out of the geek even when he's a cop. Never got in the habit of this thing called sleep. He dumped in sugar, swirled it, and drank half while Tom stood there. The aide refilled the cup. Thanks. Now, what do we got here? He was looking over the workstation where Cooper was perched. Ouch. Ouch. You're running on a cable modem with 1.5 MBPs? You know, they make computer screens in color now, and there's this thing called the Internet. Funny, Rhyme muttered. Talk to me when the case is over. We'll do some rewiring and LAN readjustment. Set you up with F.E. Weird Al. F.E. LAN. Sarnik pulled on tinted glasses, plugged his computer into ports on Rhyme's computer, and began pounding on the keys. Rhyme noticed certain letters were worn off and the touchpad was seriously sweat-stained. The keyboard seemed to be dusted with crumbs. The look Salido shot Rhyme said, It takes all kinds. The first of the two men who joined them in Andrew Sterling's office was slender, middle-aged, with an unrevealing face. He resembled a retired cop. The other, younger and cautious, was pure corporate junior exec. He looked like the blonde brother on that sitcom, Frasier. Regarding the first, Sachs was near the mark. He hadn't been blue, but was a former FBI agent and was now head of SSD security, Tom O'Day. The other was Mark Whitcomb, the assistant head of the company's compliance department. Sterling explained, Tom and his security boys make sure people on the outside don't do anything bad to us. Mark's department makes sure we don't do anything bad to the general public. We navigate a minefield. I'm sure that the research you did on SSD showed you we are subject to hundreds of state and federal laws on privacy. The Graham-Leach-Bliley Act about misuse of personal information and pretexting, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, a lot of state laws, too. The Compliance Department makes sure we know what the rules are and stay within the lines. Good, she thought. These two would be perfect to spread the word about the 522 investigation and encourage the killer to sniff out the trap on the NYPD server. Doodling on a yellow pad, Mark Whitcomb said, We want to make sure that when Michael Moore makes a movie about data purveyors, we're not center stage. Don't even joke, Sterling said laughing, though with genuine concern evident in his face. Then he asked Sachs, Can I share with them what you told me? Sure, please. Sterling gave a succinct and clear account. He'd retained everything she told him, even down to the specific brands of the clues. Whitcomb frowned as he listened. O'Day took it all in, unsmiling and silent. Sachs was convinced that FBI reserve was not learned behavior, but originated in the womb. Sterling said firmly, So, that's the problem we're facing. If there is any way SSD is involved, I want to know about it, and I want solutions. We've identified four possible sources of the risk. Hackers, intruders, employees, and clients. Your thoughts? O'Day, the former agent, said to Sachs, 
Well, let's deal with hackers first. We have the best firewalls in the business. Better than Microsoft and Sun. We use ICS out of Boston for internet security. I can tell you we're a duck in an arcade game. Every hacker in the world would like to crack us. And nobody's been able to do it since we moved to New York five years ago. We've had a few people get into our administrative servers for 10, 15 minutes, but not a single breach of inner circle. And that's what your unsub would have to get into to find the information he needed for these crimes. And he couldn't get in through a single breach. He'd have to hit at least three or four separate servers. Sterling added, As for an outside intruder, that'd be impossible, too. We have the same physical perimeter protections used by the National Security Agency. We have 15 full-time security guards and 20 part-time. Besides, no visitor could get near the inner circle servers. We log everybody and don't let anyone roam freely, even customers. Sachs and Pulaski had been escorted to the sky lobby by one of those guards, a humorless young man whose vigilance wasn't diminished one bit by the fact they were police. O'Day added, We had one incident about three years ago, but nothing since. He glanced at Sterling. The reporter? The CEO nodded. Some hotshot journalist from one of the Metro papers. He was doing an article on identity theft and decided we were the devil incarnate. Axiom and Choice Point had the good sense not to let him into their headquarters. I believe in free press, so I talked to him. He went to the restroom and claimed he got lost. He came back here cheerful as could be, but something didn't seem right. Our security people went through his briefcase and found a camera. On it were pictures of trade secret protected business plans and even passcodes. O'Day said, The reporter not only lost his job, but was prosecuted under criminal trespass statutes. He served six months in state prison. And, as far as I know, he hasn't had a steady job as a journalist since. Sterling lowered his head slightly and said to Sachs, We take security very, very seriously. A young man appeared in the doorway. At first she thought it was Martin, the assistant, but she realized that was only because of the similarity in build and the black suit. Andrew, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Ah, Jeremy. So this was the second assistant. He looked at Pulaski's uniform, then at Sachs. Then, as with Martin, when he realized he wasn't being introduced, he ignored everyone in the room except his boss. Carpenter, Sterling said, I need to see him today. Yes, Andrew. After he was gone, Sachs asked, Employees, is there anyone you've had disciplinary problems with? Sterling said, we run extensive background checks on our people. I won't allow hiring anybody who's had any convictions other than traffic violations, and background checks are one of our specialties. But even if an employee wanted to get into inner circle, it would be impossible for him to steal any data. Mark, tell her about the pens. Sure, Andrew. To Sachs, he said, We have concrete firewalls. I'm not a technical person, Sachs said. Whitcomb laughed. No, no, it's very low-tech, literally concrete, as in walls and floors. We divide up the data when we receive them and store them in physically separate places. You'll understand better if I tell you how SSD operates. We start with the premise that data is our main asset. If somebody was to duplicate Inner Circle, we'd be out of business in a week. So, number one, protect our asset, as we say here. Now, where does all this data come from? 
from thousands of sources, credit card companies, banks, government records offices, retail stores, online operations, court clerks, DMV departments, hospitals, insurance companies. We consider each event that creates data a, quote, transaction, which could be a call to an 800 number, registering a car, a health insurance claim, filing a lawsuit, a birth, wedding, purchase, merchandise return, a complaint. In your business, a transaction could be a rape, a burglary, a murder, any crime. Also, the opening of a case file, selecting a juror, a trial, a conviction. Whitcomb continued, Anytime data about a transaction comes to SSD, it goes first to the intake center where it's evaluated. For security, we have a data masking policy, separating the person's name and replacing it with a code. Social security number? A flicker of emotion crossed Sterling's face. Ah, no. Those were created solely for government retirement accounts, ages ago. It was a fluke that they became identification. Inaccurate, easy to steal or buy. Dangerous, like keeping a loaded gun unlocked around the house. Our code is a 16-digit number. 98% of adult Americans have SSD codes. Now, every child whose birth is registered anywhere in North America automatically gets a code. Why 16 digits? Pulaski asked. Gives us room for expansion, Sterling said. We never have to worry about running out of numbers. We can assign nearly one quintillion codes. The Earth will run out of living space before SSD runs out of numbers. The codes make our system much more secure, and it's far faster to process data than using a name or social. Also, using a code neutralizes the human element and takes the prejudice out of the equation. Psychologically, we have opinions about Adolf or Brittany or Shaquilla or Diego before we even meet them simply because of their name. A number eliminates that bias and improves efficiency. Please go on, Mark. Sure, Andrew. Once the name is swapped for the code, the intake center evaluates the transaction, decides where it belongs, and sends it to one or more of three separate areas, our data pens. Pen A is where we store personal lifestyle data. Pen B is financial. That includes salary history, banking, credit reports, insurance. Pen C is public and government filings and records. Then the data is cleansed. Sterling took over once again. The impurities are weeded out and it's made uniform. For instance, on some forms your sex is given as F, in others it's female. Sometimes it's a one or a zero. You have to be consistent. We also remove the noise. That's impure data. It could be erroneous, could have too many details, could have too few details. Noise is contamination, and contamination has to be eliminated. He said this firmly, another dash of emotion. Then the cleansed data sits in one of our pens until a client needs a fortune teller. How do you mean? asked Pulaski. Sterling explained. In the 1970s, computer database software gave companies an analysis of past performance. In the 90s, the data showed how they were doing at any given moment. More helpful. Now we can predict what consumers are going to do and guide our clients to take advantage of that. Sachs said, Then you're not just predicting the future, you're trying to change it. Exactly. But what other reason is there to go to a fortune teller? His eyes were calm, almost amused. Yet Sachs felt uneasy, thinking back to the run-in with the federal agent yesterday in Brooklyn. It was as if 522 had done just what he was describing, predicted a shootout between them.
Sterling gestured to Whitcomb, who continued. Okay, so data, which contain no names but only numbers, go into these three separate pens on different floors and different security zones. An employee in the public records pen can't access the data in the lifestyle pen or the financial pen, and nobody in any of the data pens can access the information in the intake center and link the name and address to the 16-digit code. Sterling said, that's what Tom meant when he said that a hacker would have to breach all of the data pens independently. O'Day added, and we monitor 24-7. We'd know instantly if someone unauthorized tried to physically enter a pen. They'd be fired on the spot and probably arrested. Besides, you can't download anything from the computers and the pens. There are no ports, and even if you managed to break into a server and hardwire a device, you couldn't get it out. Everybody searched, every employee, senior executive, security guard, fire warden, janitor, even Andrew. We have metal and dense material detectors at every entrance and exit to the data pens and intake, even the fire doors. Whitcomb took up the narrative. And a magnetic field generator that you have to walk through. It erases all digital data on any medium you're carrying, iPod, phone, or hard drive. No, nobody gets out of those rooms with a kilobyte of information on them. Sachs said, So stealing the data from these pens, either by hackers outside or intruders or employees inside, would be almost impossible. Sterling was nodding. Data are our only asset. We guard them religiously. What about the other scenario, somebody who works for a client? Like Tom was saying, the way this man operates, he'd have to have access to the inner circle dossiers of each of the victims and the men arrested for the crimes. Right. Sterling lifted his hands like a professor. But customers don't have access to dossiers. They wouldn't want them anyway. Inner circle contains raw data and wouldn't do them any good. What they want is our analysis of the data. Customers log on to Watchtower, that's our proprietary database management system, and other programs like Expectation or Fort. The programs themselves search through Inner Circle, find the relevant data, and put them into usable form. If you want to think of the mining analogy, Watchtower sifts through tons of dirt and rock and finds gold nuggets. She said in response, but if a client bought a number of mailing lists, say, they could come up with enough data about one of our victims to commit the crimes, couldn't they? She nodded at the evidence list she'd shown Sterling earlier. For instance, our perp could get lists of everyone who bought that kind of shave cream and condoms and duct tape and running shoes and so on. Sterling lifted an eyebrow. Hmm, it would be a huge amount of work, but it's theoretically possible. All right. I'll get a list of all our customers who've bought any data that included your victims' names. In the past, say, three months? No, maybe six. That should do it. She dug through her briefcase, considerably less organized than Sterling's desktop, and handed him a list of the victims and fall guys. Our client agreement gives us the right to share information about them. There won't be a problem legally, but it will take a few hours to put together. Thanks. Now, one final question about employees. Even if they're not allowed in the pens, could they download a dossier in their office? He was nodding, impressed by her question, it seemed, even though it suggested an SSD worker might be the killer. Most employees can't. Again, we have to protect our data, but a few of us have what's called all-access permission. 
Whitcomb gave a smile. Well, but look who that is, Andrew. If there's a problem here, we need to explore all possible solutions. Whitcomb said to Sachs and Pulaski. The thing is, the all-access employees are senior people here. They've been with the company for years. We're like a family. We have parties together. We have our inspirational retreats. Sterling held up a hand, cutting him off, and said, We have to follow up on it, Mark. I want this rooted out, whatever it takes. I want answers. Who has all-access rights? Sachs asked. Sterling shrugged. I'm authorized, our head of sales, the head of technical operations. Our human resources director could put together a dossier, I suppose, though I'm sure he never has. And Mark's boss, our compliance department director. He gave her the names. Sachs glanced at Whitcomb, who shook his head. I don't have access. O'Day didn't either. Your assistants? Sachs asked Sterling, referring to Jeremy and Martin. No. Now, as for the repair folks, the techies, the line people couldn't assemble a dossier, but we have two service managers who could, one on the day shift, one at night. He gave her their names, too. Sachs looked over the list. There's one easy way to tell whether or not they're innocent. How? We know where the killer was on Sunday afternoon. If they have alibis, they'll be off the hook. Let me interview them right now if we can. Good, Sterling said and gave an approving look at her suggestion. A simple solution to one of his problems. Then she realized something. Every time he'd looked at her this morning, his gaze had met her eyes. Unlike many, if not most, men Sachs met, Sterling hadn't once glanced over her body, hadn't offered a bit of flirt. She wondered what the bedroom story was. She asked, Could I see the security and the data pens for myself? Sure. Just leave your pager, phone, and PDA outside, and any thumb drives. If you don't, all the data will be erased, and you'll be searched when you leave. Okay. Sterling nodded to O'Day, who stepped into the hall and returned with the stern security guard who'd walked Sachs and Pulaski here from the massive lobby downstairs. Sterling printed out a pass for her, signed it, and handed it to the guard, who led her out into the halls. Sachs was pleased that Sterling hadn't resisted her request. She had an ulterior motive for seeing the pens for herself. Not only could she make yet more people aware of the investigation, in the hope they'd go for the bait, but she could question the guard about the security measures to verify what O'Day, Sterling, and Whitcomb had told her. But the man remained virtually silent, like a child told by his parents not to speak to strangers. Through doorways, up corridors, down a staircase, up another one. She was soon completely disoriented. Her muscles shivered. The spaces were increasingly confined, narrow, and dim. Her claustrophobia began to kick in. While the windows were small throughout the gray rock, here, approaching the data pens, they were non-existent. She took a deep breath. It didn't help. She glanced at his name badge. Say, John. Yes, ma'am. What's the story with the windows? They're either small or there aren't any. Andrew's concerned that people might try to photograph information from outside, like passcodes or business plans. Really? Could somebody do that? I don't know. We're told to check sometimes, scan nearby observation decks, windows of buildings facing the company. Nobody's ever seen something suspicious, but Andrew wants us to keep doing it. The data pens were eerie places, all color-coded. Personal lifestyle was blue, financial red, 
governmental green. They were huge spaces, but that did nothing to allay her claustrophobia. The ceilings were very low, the rooms dim and aisles narrow between the rows of computers. A constant churning filled the air, a low tone like a growl. The air conditioning was working like mad given the number of computers and the electricity they'd require, but the atmosphere was close and stifling. As for the computers, she'd never seen so many in her life. They were massive white boxes and were identified, curiously, not by numbers or letters, but by decals depicting cartoon characters like Spider-Man, Batman, Barney, the Roadrunner, and Mickey Mouse. SpongeBob, she asked, nodding at one. John offered his first smile. It's another layer of security, Andrew thought of. We have people looking online for anybody talking about SSD and inner circle. If there's a reference to the company and a cartoon name like Wiley e. Coyote or Superman, it might mean somebody's a little too interested in the computers themselves. The names jump out more than if we just numbered the computers. Smart, she said, reflecting on the irony that Sterling preferred people to be numbered and his computers named. They entered the intake center, painted a grim gray. It was smaller than the data pens and boosted her claustrophobia even further. As in the pens, the only decorations here were the logo of the watchtower and illuminated window, and a large picture of Andrew Sterling, a posed smile on his face. Below it was the caption, You're number one. Maybe it referred to market share or to an award the company had won, or maybe it was a slogan about the importance of employees. Still, to Sachs, it seemed ominous, as if you were at the top of a list you didn't want to be on. The breathing was coming quickly as the sense of confinement grew. Gets to you, doesn't it? the guard asked. She gave a smile. A little. We make our rounds, but nobody spends more time in the pens than we have to. Now that she'd broken the ice and gotten John to answer in more than monosyllables, she asked him about the security to verify if Sterling and the others were being straight. They were, it seemed. John reiterated what the CEO had said. None of the computers or workstations in the rooms had a slot or port to download data, merely keyboards and monitors. And the rooms were shielded, the guard said. No wireless signals could get out. And he explained, too, what Sterling and Whitcomb had told her earlier about data from each pen being useless without the data from the others and from intake. There wasn't much security on the computer monitors, but to get into the pens, you needed your ID card, a passcode, and a biometric scan, or, apparently, a big security guard watching your every move, which was just what John had been doing, and not so subtly. The security outside the pens was tight, too, as the executives had told her. Both she and the guard were searched carefully when they left each one and had to walk through both a metal detector and a thick frame called a data clear unit. The machine warned, Passing through this system permanently erases all digital data on computers, drives, cell phones, and other devices. As they returned to Sterling's office, John told her that, to his knowledge, nobody had ever broken into SSD. Still, O'Day regularly had them run drills to prevent security intrusions. Like most of the guards, John didn't carry a gun, but Sterling had a policy that at least two armed guards be present 24 hours a day. Back in the CEO's office, she found Pulaski sitting on a huge leather sofa near Martin's desk. Though not a small man, he seemed dwarfed, a student who'd been sent to the principal's office. 
In her absence, the young officer had taken the initiative to check on the compliance department head, Samuel Brockton, Whitcomb's boss, who had all-access rights. He was staying in Washington, D.C. Hotel records showed he'd been at brunch in the dining room at the time of the killing yesterday. She noted this, then glanced over the all-access permission list. Andrew Sterling, President, Chief Executive Officer. Sean Cassell, Director of Sales and Marketing. Wayne Gillespie, Director of Technical Operations. Samuel Brockton, Director, Compliance Department. Alibi, Hotel Records Confirmed Presence in Washington. Peter Arlonzo Kemper, Director of Human Resources. Stephen Schrader, Technical Service and Support Manager, Day Shift. Farouk Mamida, Technical Service and Support Manager, Night Shift. She said to Sterling, I'd like to interview them as soon as possible. The CEO called his assistant and learned that, other than Brockton, everyone was in town, though Schrader was handling a hardware crisis in the intake center, and Mamita would not be coming in until three that afternoon. He instructed Martin to have them come upstairs for interviews. He'd find a vacant conference room. Sterling told the intercom to disconnect and said, All right, detective, it's up to you now. Go clear our name, or find your killer. Chapter 20 Rodney Sarnak had their mousetrap in place, and the young shaggy-haired officer was happily trying to hack into SSD's main servers. His knee bobbed and he whistled from time to time, which irritated Rhyme, but he let the kid alone. The criminalist had been known to talk to himself when searching crime scenes and considering possible approaches to a case. Takes all kinds. The doorbell rang. It was an officer from the CS lab in Queens with a present, some evidence from one of the earlier crimes. The murder weapon, a knife, used in the coin theft and killing. The rest of the physical evidence was in storage somewhere. A request had been made, but no one could say when or if it could be located. Rhyme had Cooper sign the chain of custody form. Even after trial, protocols must be followed. That's strange. Most of the other evidence is missing, Rhyme remarked, though he realized that being a weapon, the knife would have been retained in a locked facility in the lab's inventory, rather than archived with non-lethal evidence. Rhyme glanced at the chart about the crime. They found some of that dust in the knife handle. Let's see if we can figure out what it is, but first, what's the story on the knife itself? Cooper ran the manufacturer's information through the NYPD weapons database. Made in China, sold in bulk to thousands of retail outlets. Cheap, so we can assume he paid cash for it. Well, hadn't expected much. Let's move on to the dust. Cooper donned gloves and opened the bag. He carefully brushed the handle of the knife, whose blade was dark brown with the victim's blood, and it shed traces of white dust onto the examination paper. Dust fascinated Rhyme. In forensics, the term refers to solid particles less than 500 micrometers in size and made up of fibers from clothing and upholstery, dander from human and animal skin, fragments of plants and insects, bits of dried excrement, dirt, and any number of chemicals. Some types are aerosol, others settle quickly on surfaces. Dust can cause health problems like black lung and be dangerously explosive. Flower dust in grain elevators, for instance, and can even affect the climate. Forensically, thanks to static electricity and other adhesive properties, dust is often transferred from perpetrator to crime scene and vice versa, 
which makes it extremely helpful to police. When Rhyme was running the crime scene division of the NYPD, he'd created a large database of dust gathered from all five boroughs of the city and parts of New Jersey and Connecticut. Only small amounts adhered to the knife handle, but Mel Cooper collected enough to run a sample through the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, which breaks substances down into their component parts, then identifies each one. This took time. It wasn't Cooper's fault. His hand, surprisingly large and muscular for such a slight man, moved quickly and efficiently. It was the machines that plodded away slowly, performing their methodical magic. While they waited for the results, Cooper ran additional chemical tests on another sample of the dust to reveal materials the GCMS might not find. Eventually, the results were available, and Mel Cooper explained the combined analysis as he wrote the details on the whiteboard. All right, Lincoln. We've got vermiculite, plaster, synthetic foam, glass fragments, paint particles, mineral wool fibers, glass fibers, calcite grains, paper fibers, quartz grains, low-temperature combustion material, metal flakes, chrysotile asbestos, and some chemicals. Looks like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, paraffin, olefin, naphthene, octanes, polychlorinated biphenols, dibenzodioxins. Don't see those very often and dibenzofurans. Oh, and some brominated diphenyl ethers. The Trade Center, Rhyme said. It is? Yep. The dust from the collapsed World Trade Towers in 2001 had been the source of health problems for workers near Ground Zero, and variations of its composition had been in the news lately. Rhyme was well aware of its composition. So he's downtown? Possibly, Rhyme said but you could find the dust all over the five boroughs. Let's leave it a question mark for the time being. He grimaced. So, our profile so far, a man who might be white or a light-skinned ethnic, who might collect coins and might like art, and his residence or place of work might be downtown. He might have children, might smoke. Rhyme squinted at the knife. Let me see it up close. Cooper brought the weapon to him, and Rhyme stared at every millimeter of the handle. His body was defective, but his eyesight was as good as a teenager's. There, what's that? Where? Between the hasp and the bone. It was a tiny fleck of something pale. You could see that? The tech whispered. I missed it completely. With a needle probe, he worked it out and put it on an examination slide. He looked at it through a microscope. He started with lower magnifications, which are enough, 4 to 24 power, unless you need the magic of a scanning electron microscope. Crumb of food, looks like, something baked, orange tint. Spectrum suggests oil, maybe junk food, like Doritos or potato chips. Not enough to run through the GCMS. No way, Cooper confirmed. He wasn't going to plant something as small as that at the Fall Guy's house. It's some other bit of real information about 522. What the hell was it? Something from his lunch the day of the killing? I want to taste it. What? There's blood on it. The handle, not the blade, just where that fleck is. I want to find out what it is. There's not enough to taste. This little chip? You can hardly see it. I didn't see it. No, the knife itself. Maybe I can find a flavor or spice that'll tell us something. You can't lick a murder weapon, Lincoln. Where's that written down, Mel? I don't remember reading that. We need information about this guy. 
Well, okay. The tech held the knife close to Rhyme's face, and the criminalist leaned forward and touched his tongue to the place where they'd found the fleck. Jesus Christ. He reared his head back. What's wrong? Cooper asked, alarmed. Get me some water. Cooper tossed the knife onto the examination table and went to call Tom as Rhyme spit on the floor. His mouth was on fire. Tom came running. What's wrong? Man, that hurts. I asked for water. I just ate some hot sauce. Hot sauce? Like Tabasco? I don't know what kind. Well, you don't want water. You want milk or yogurt. Then get some. Tom came back with a carton of yogurt and fed Rhyme several spoonfuls. To his surprise, the pain went away immediately. Phew, that hurt. Okay, Mal, we've learned something else, maybe. Our boy likes his chips and salsa. Well, let's just go with a snack food and hot sauce. Put it on the chart. As Cooper wrote, Rhyme glanced at the clock and snapped, Where the hell is Saks? Well, she's at SSD. Cooper looked confused. I know that. What I mean is, why the hell isn't she back here? And Tom, I want some more yogurt. Unsub 522 Profile Male Possibly smokes or lives, works with someone who does, or near source of tobacco. Has children or lives, works, near them, or near source of toys. Interest in art, coins, probably white or light-skinned ethnic. Medium build. Strong, able to strangle victims. Access to voice disguise equipment. Possibly computer literate, knows our world. Other social networking sites? Takes trophies from victims. Sadist? Portion of residence workplace dark and moist. Lives in near downtown Manhattan? Eats snack food hot sauce. Non-planted evidence. Old cardboard. Hair from doll, BASF B35 Nylon 6. Tobacco from Tarryton cigarettes. Old tobacco, not Tarryton, but brand unknown. Evidence of Stachybotrys charterum mold. Dust from World Trade Center attack, possibly indicating residence job downtown Manhattan. Snack food with hot sauce. Chapter 21 the conference room where Sachs and Pulaski had been led was as minimalist as Sterling's office. She decided a good way to describe the entire company would be austere deco. Sterling himself escorted them to the room and gestured to two chairs beneath the logo of the window atop the watchtower. He said, I don't expect to be treated any differently than anyone else. Since I have all access rights, I'm a suspect too. But I have an alibi for yesterday. I was on Long Island all day. I do that a lot. Drive to some of the big discount stores and the membership shopping clubs to see what people are buying, how they buy, what times of day. I'm always looking for ways to make our business more efficient, and you can't do that unless you know our clients' needs. Who are you meeting with? Nobody. I never tell anyone who I am. I want to see the operation the way it actually works. Blemishes and everything. But my car's easy pass record should show that I went through the Midtown Tunnel toll booth about 9 a.m. eastbound and then came back through about 5.30. You can check with DMV. He recited his tag number. Oh, and yesterday I called my son. He took the train up to Westchester to go hiking at some forest preserve. He went by himself and I wanted to check on him. 
I called about two in the afternoon. The phone records will show a call from my Hampton house. Or you can take a look at the incoming call list on his mobile. It should have the date and time. His extension is 7187. Sachs wrote this down along with the number of Sterling's summer house phone. She thanked him, then Jeremy, the outside assistant, arrived and whispered something to his boss. I have to take care of something. If there's anything you need, anything at all, just let me know. A few minutes later, the first of their suspects arrived. Sean Cassell, the director of sales and marketing. He struck her as quite young, probably mid-thirties, but she'd seen very few people in SSD who were over forty. Data was perhaps the new Silicon Valley, a world of youthful entrepreneurs. Cassell, with a long face, classically handsome, seemed athletic. Solid arms, broad shoulders. He was wearing the SSD uniform, in his case a navy suit. The white shirt was immaculate and the cuffs clasped with heavy gold links. The yellow tie was thick silk. He had curly hair, rosy skin, and peered steadily at Sachs through glasses. She hadn't known Dolce and Gabbana made frames. Hi. Hello, I'm Detective Sachs. This is Officer Pulaski. Have a seat. She shook his hand, noting the firm grip that lingered longer than the clasp with Pulaski. So, you're a detective? The sales director had not a shred of interest in the patrolman. That's right. Would you like to see my ID? Oh, that's okay. Now, we're just getting information about some of the employees here. Do you know Amira Weinberg? No. Should I? She was the victim of a murder. Oh. A flash of contrition as the hip facade vanished momentarily. I heard something about a crime. I didn't know it was a murder, though. I'm sorry. Was she an employee here? No, but the person who killed her might have had access to information in your company's computers. I know you have full access to Inner Circle. Is there any way somebody who works for you could assemble an individual's dossier? He shook his head. To get a closet, you need three passcodes, or a biomet and one. Closet? He hesitated. Oh, that's what we call a dossier. We use a lot of shorthand in the knowledge service business. Like secrets in a closet, she assumed. But nobody could get my passcode. Everyone's very careful about keeping them secret. Andrew insists on it. Cassell removed his glasses and polished them with a black cloth that appeared magically in his hand. He's fired employees who've used other people's passcodes even with their permission. Fired on the spot. He concentrated on his glass-polishing task, then looked up. Well, let's be honest. What you're really asking about isn't passcodes, but alibis. Am I right? We'd like to know that, too. Where were you from noon to 4 p.m. yesterday? Running. I'm training for a mini triathlon. You look like you run, too. You're pretty athletic. If standing still while punching holes in targets at 25 and 50 feet is athletic, then yeah. Could anybody verify that? That you're athletic? It's pretty obvious to me. Smile. Sometimes it was best to play along. Pulaski stirred, which Cassell noted with amusement, but she said nothing. Sachs didn't need anybody to defend her honor. With a sideways glance at the uniformed officer, Cassell continued, No, I'm afraid not. A friend stayed over, but she left about 9.30. Am I a suspect or anything? We're just getting information at this point, Pulaski said. Are you now? He sounded condescending, as if he were talking to a child. Just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> Just the facts. A line from an old TV show. Sachs couldn't remember which one. 
Sachs asked where he'd been at the times of the other killings, the coin dealer, the earlier rape, and the woman who'd owned the Prescott painting. He replaced the glasses and told her he didn't recall. He seemed completely at ease. How often do you go into the data pens? Maybe once a week. Do you take any information out? He frowned slightly. Well, you can't. The security system won't let you. And how often do you download dossiers? I don't know if I ever have. It's just raw data. Too noisy to be helpful for anything I do. All right, well, I appreciate your time. I think that'll do it for now. The smile and flirt faded. So this is a problem, something I should be worried about? We're just doing some preliminary investigation. Ah, not giving anything away. A glance at Pulaski. Play it close to the chest, right, Sergeant Friday? Ah, that was it, Sachs realized. Dragnet, the old police show she and her father would watch and rerun years ago. After he'd left, another employee joined them. Wayne Gillespie, who oversaw the technical side of the company, the software and hardware. He didn't exactly fit Sachs's impression of a geek. Not at first. He was tanned and in good shape, wore an expensive silver or platinum bracelet. His grip was strong. But on closer examination, she decided he was a classic techie after all, somebody dressed by his mother for class photographs. The short, thin man wore a rumpled suit and a tie that wasn't knotted properly. His shoes were scuffed, his nails ragged, and not properly scrubbed. His hair could use a trim. It was as if he was playing the role of a corporate exec, but infinitely preferred to be in a dark room with his computer. Unlike Cassell, Gillespie was nervous, hands constantly in motion, fiddling with three electronic devices on his belt, a Blackberry, a PDA, and an elaborate cell phone. He avoided eye contact. Flirt was the last thing on his mind, though, like the sales director, his wedding ring finger was bare. Maybe Sterling preferred single men in positions of power at his company. Loyal princes rather than ambitious dukes. Sachs's impression was that Gillespie had heard less than Cassell about their presence here, and she snagged his attention when she described the crimes. Interesting. Okay, interesting. That's sleek. He's pianoing data to commit crimes. He's what? Gillespie flicked his fingers together with nervous energy. I mean, he's finding data, collecting it. No comment about the fact that people had been murdered. Was this an act? The real killer might have feigned horror and sympathy. Sachs asked his whereabouts on Sunday, and he too had no alibi, though he launched into a long story of code he was debugging at home and some role-playing computer game he was competing in. So there'd be a record of when you were online yesterday? A hesitation now. Oh, I was just... Practicing, you know, I wasn't online. I, I looked up and suddenly it was late. You're so nod, everything else kind of disappears. Nod? He realized he was speaking a foreign language. Oh, I mean, like you're in a zone, you get caught up in the game, like the rest of your life dozes off. He claimed not to know Myra Weinberg either, and no one could have gotten access to his passcodes, he assured her. As for cracking my words, good luck. They're all sixteen-digit random characters. I've never written them down. I'm lucky I've got a good memory. Gillespie was on his computer, in the system, all the time. He added defensively, I mean, it's my job. Though he frowned in confusion when asked about downloading individual dossiers. There's, like, no point. 
reading about everything John Doe bought last week at his local grocery store? Hello, I've got better things to do. He also admitted that he spent a lot of time in the data pens tuning the boxes. Her impression was that he liked it there, found it comfortable, the same place that she couldn't escape from fast enough. Gillespie, too, was unable to recall where he'd been at the times of the other killings. She thanked him, and he laughed, pulling his PDA off his belt before he was through the doorway and typing a message with his thumbs faster than Sachs could use all her fingers. As they waited for the next all-access suspect to arrive, Sachs asked Pulaski, Impressions? Okay, I don't like Cassell. I'm with you there. But he seems too obnoxious to be 522. Too yuppie, you know? If he could kill somebody with his 